G'day, mate. Forty here. So if you've watched this show recently, know that I think it's absolutely clear that the United States is losing because of this Israel-Hamas war. It is diverting the attention of the U.S. president and the U.S. foreign policy establishment away from that which is most important, and that's containing the rise of China. China is America's number one geopolitical threat. And anything that detracts from our attention on our principal enemy is going to be a loss. Also, there's the threat of wider escalation in this war, which would divert more and more American resources uh, away from dealing with our primary threat. Also, this uh, Israel-Hamas war is highly unpopular in the wider world. Uh, most countries in the world are effectively siding against Israel in this conflict. They see numbers over 20,000 civilian dead, according to the Hamas-controlled Gaza Health Ministry, and uh, they just think that, you know, Israel's conducting a massacre. And the United States has aligned itself squarely with Israel, not just supplying Israel with weapons, but the President of the United States flew to Israel and literally embraced Bibi Netanyahu. So whatever Israel does, all right, that is accounted to most of the world as though America is doing it. And the world doesn't like it. So we're losing allied support, right? We're losing popularity in the world. We're being diverted in just our, our cognitive resources, our bandwidth by our foreign policy leaders from that which is most important, the rise of China. Then we also have become unnecessarily heavily involved in Ukraine, which is diverting you know, more bandwidth and, and more resources and getting us into a dangerous situation where we increasingly have incentivized Russia to instigate all sorts of trouble for us in the world, which will just divert more bandwidth and more resources. So whether it's the Balkans or the Middle East or Africa, right, Russia is heavily incentivized to try to hurt and divert the U.S. wherever it can. If it can get U.S. paying more attention to Israel, which it's done since the Hamas attack of October 7, then the U.S. has less bandwidth and, in all likelihood, fewer resources to give to Ukraine. Right? Ukraine's basically dropped largely from the news since the October 7 attack. That is a massive win for, for Russia. So the U.S. is getting diverted from dealing with its primary enemy, China, by these unnecessary conflicts that America has gotten into in the Middle East and in Ukraine. So why on earth does America have military bases in Syria? All right, Syria is an independent country racked by, by civil war, but why on earth do we have U.S. military bases in Syria? The more bases we have around the Middle East, right, the more susceptible, the more likely they are to be attacked, which will, again, divert more and more resources from that which is most important. But uh, according to the news media, the most important thing going on right now is Donald Trump is using Hitlerian language. Let's get something from Howard Kurtz. Period. Now, that doesn't sound like a terribly controversial comment, but for a long time, much of the media tried to play down or ignore. Okay. Come on. Here we go. Let's cue it out right, 40. What's Trump what done now? Trump says is news. Period. Now, that doesn't sound like a terribly controversial comment, but for a long time, much of the media tried to play down or ignore the former president's words on the theory that this would only help him rile up his base and, well, why give him a platform? Trump has used harsh anti-immigration rhetoric since his first campaign. All right. That's a, a killer point. All right. For, for, for about uh, 
20 months after January 6th, the United States media, in- including Fox News, but also the New York Times, has not wanted to pay much attention to what Donald Trump is saying. You would think if their primary agenda was reporting the news, they would have to pay attention to what the, the former president saying. of the United States was saying. But there's a wider agenda. All right, The news media doesn't just want to report the news. They, they are so outraged by Donald Trump and the, the threat that he presents to all that the, they regard as true and good and holy all right, to their hero system that they deliberately shape the news to try to sideline Donald Trump's chances for becoming president of the United States once again. I mean, this is a very telling admission here made by Howard Kurtz. And now his language is getting rougher. And that, of course, should be covered. He's a Republican frontrunner by far and has a good shot at winning back the White House. Trump really lit a fuse when he said this last weekend in New Hampshire. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. Suddenly there was a media explosion with journalists and pundits accusing Trump of echoing the racist rhetoric of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Trump absolutely stood by his remarks in Iowa, but dismissed any Nazi influence. And it's true. They're destroying the blood of our country. That's what they're doing. They're destroying our country. They don't. Yeah, the Nazis talked about the importance of blood. <laughs> so does, essentially does the Torah, right? Hundreds of different groups have talked about the importance of blood. So invoking the importance of blood and just linking that to the Nazis is to take a highly selective perspective on history. I like it when I said that. And I never read Mein Kampf. They said, oh, Hitler said that in a much different way. No, they're coming from all over the world. Right. If the Nazis say, you know, there's a law of gravity, right, that that doesn't mean that the law of gravity is false. If the, the Nazis say that you should be kind to animals, all right, that doesn't mean that kindness to animals is false. If uh, the Nazis say that, you know, water freezes at a certain temperature, all right, that doesn't mean they're wrong. If uh, the Nazis say it's good to have national unity, that doesn't mean national unity is wrong. It, the Nazis create activities for people to come together and be less lonely, right? That doesn't mean communal activities are wrong. Right, just because the Nazis say or do something doesn't automatically make that thing wrong. Major media outlets are furiously trying to link Trump to Hitler. But is that fact or just opinion? I'm Howard Kurtz, and this is a special edition of Media Buzz. Ahead, the stunning decision by Colorado's all-Democratic top court to try to knock Donald Trump off the state's ballot. And a conversation with Senator Ted Cruz about what he calls the corrupt media. The media are now fully engaged in a heated debate over Donald Trump and Nazism. The disastrous effects of illegal immigration, they're all around us. Democrats can't justify any of it. All they can do is blather on about Trump's Hitler, or if Trump wins, he's never going to hold another election. It's all just absurd. First, Trump couldn't read, and now he reads Mein Kampf. Why are the Democrats in the media obsessed with Hitler? It's all they ever talk about. It is language that I think people have rightly found similar to the language of Hitler. In Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote, the Jew, and I'm quoting him here, poisons the blood of others. 
Trump has used that line before and other phrases like it that echo Nazi rhetoric. You can't bring up the fact that Donald Trump talks like a fascist or Mussolini or Hitler. Uh, when in fact you go back and see what Adolf Hitler said about vermin. He was talking about people coming from other countries, coming from prisons, and they wanted to focus all the Sunday shows, Lawrence, on the word he used, poison. He was just trying to say, we want to keep America, America. Joining us now to analyze the coverage in Detroit, Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason Magazine. And in San Diego, Laura Fink, CEO of Rebel Communications. Robbie, Donald Trump loves to stir up this kind of controversy, but are much of the media going too far in saying he's Hitler, he's Mussolini, he's a fascist? Frankly, at this point, I think... The, this, the reaction to these remarks tells you more about the media than it does about Donald Trump. Look, if I was Donald Trump, would I choose my words more carefully? For sure. But if this was a criticism that would stick, Trump is a Nazi, Trump is Hitler, it would have worked by now. It is the media's favorite refrain. The amount of coverage that this story got this week was, was baffling. Um, they just, the media thinks this is the playbook. If you explain to people how Trump is Hitler, they will stop liking him, they will stop voting for him. The reality is that's not true. There's a lot of frustration about the economic situation in this country. There is frustration with illegal immigration. Do I think Trump should choose his, more words, his words more carefully and distinguish between illegal immigration and just immigrants in general? general? Absolutely, because he needs to bring in new voters and he needs to win them over with, I think, more favorable rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But come on, Hitler, Nazi, like no one is buying that anymore. The media says that about, first of all, every Republican, and they said it about Trump for 10 years, and it doesn't work. Well, let's see what Laura says. You could make a case that the former president is using increased back when he said, look, I've never read Mein Kampf and Hitler was in a whole different context. Um, well, you know, that sort of backwalking and gaslighting is, as you said, part and if uh, Hitler had read Mein Kampf, uh, if Trump had read <laughs> Mein Kampf, so what? Speeches by his bedside. Uh, Trump told the radio's Hugh Hewitt that I know nothing about Hitler. Robbie, let me play some sound for you, a kind of a hallway debate between Republican Senator J.D. Vance and AP Chief Congressional Correspondent Lisa Mascaro. The idea that I am well aware, you just framed your question implicitly assuming that Donald Trump is talking about Adolf Hitler. It's absurd. It is absurd. You guys need to wake up and actually do some Should he use different here, 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 language then? Here's the problem with that question and that framing. You are allegedly a journalist. Robbie, what do you make of that exchange? Look, I frankly understand the frustration. Um, I, I can't believe we're talking about this, but Adolf Hitler was referring specifically to the Jews, a racist, um, genocidal uh, policy, obviously impl uh, implemented by the, the Nazis. Yes. Um, Donald Trump was again, describing illegal immigration into the country, something most Americans think should be controlled, not that they should be killed or enter anything racial pogrom against them, but just that for the country to main the, maintain the country, we need better and stronger policies so that people can enter legally and work here and contribute to the country. I don't want to shut off immigration entirely. I don't think most Republicans want to do that. We need people to work here and contribute to our economy. It's not anti-immigrant at all. We're a nation of immigrants, and Trump could absolutely make that clear by avoiding this kind of rhetoric. I'm not saying he shouldn't. I'm not saying he right. doesn't deserve any criticism. State, all of that. I mean, DeSantis, frankly, had more of a chance against Trump before all of these indictments came in, before the Mar-a-Lago raid. It's created a mm -hmm. total rally around the flag effect for Donald Trump. It has made... Uh, have Democrats 
consciously tried to mount all these indictments against Donald Trump to get the Republicans to rally around Donald Trump, ensure that Donald Trump becomes the nominee because Democrats think that he is the Republican candidate that will be the easiest to defeat in 2024. I mean, that's, that's a strategy that sounds rational, makes sense to me for the Democrats him more likely, not less, but more likely to be the Republican nominee. Maybe on some level that's what Democrats want because they think he's a more vulnerable opponent than some of the other Republicans. I guess we're going to test that out. Well, uh, Fox Business poll in Iowa uh, has struck now at 52 percent, a 34 to 36 point lead over Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. Colorado's highest court has ignited a massive media uproar as four of the seven democratically appointed judges attempted to knock Donald Trump off the primary ballot, relying on language from the 14th Amendment against insurrectionists holding public office. The ruling already uh, being appealed to the Supreme Court, or Trump plans to do that after the holiday weekend, uses an anti-democratic tactic in the name of protecting democracy, even drawing criticism from Trump's GOP rivals. We don't need to have judges making these decisions. We need voters to have make these decisions. This is the worst legal case right, you, I've ever you, heard. You. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd for a non-lawyer to sit here and say that minus a, a, a confrontation with someone who has not been charged, much less convicted, that the court can take them off the ballot. It is a shameful moment in American jurisprudence. America is seeing the ultimate in election interference. If people keep looking for loopholes to excuse Donald Trump for accountability against the Constitution, that's where you reap the world. This is not partisan. This is about applying historic principles. Do judges randomly decide that he's an insurrectionist or do people on cable news shows decide he's an insurrectionist or does he actually have to be convicted of insurrection by by federal prosecutors? President Biden briefly addressed the matter with reporters. Is Trump an insurrectionist, sir? I don't know whether the 14th Amendment applies and let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. Robbie, they were practically popping champagne corks at MSNBC when this broke. At Fox, not so much. Uh, here you have the Colorado court saying, we declared Donald Trump to be an insurrectionist booting him off the ballot in the name of protecting democracy with about the most anti-democratic move I can think of. That's exactly right. Democracy dies in darkness. That's what the Washington Post uh, invented their new motto to be during the Trump years. This has been the constant refrain of the mainstream media that democracy at stake is at democracy itself is at stake because of Donald Trump. But here they are. Here is Democratic appointed judges using totally anti-democratic means to keep him off the ballot to prevent you from voting for him. If the American people think Trump's activities on and before January 6th constitute an insurrection, then they can hold that against him and vote for an opponent. That is what we, that is what our system says. We trust the people to make these determinations. Um, I, I have my doubts that Donald Trump, even if you think that maybe he tried to stay in office via extra legal means, that it constitutes insurrection uh, akin to what Confederate officers did, you know, taking up arms, breaking away from the Republic, right. occupying territory. None of that is what happened. You can dislike Trump. You can want to hold him accountable. But this is the court making the decision for you. And I can't think of anything more anti-democratic than that. Okay, some good points there. I mean, a lot of good stuff in this uh, Media Buzz show by Howard Kurtz. Great way to kick off the show.
And a little quickie here. Whatever happened to Alora Patuan? That's Mama JF, JF Garapi's living wife of many years. Sounds like she's also the mother of his children, several of it, couple of his children at least. And JF says, Where's your wife? I don't know. I don't care. Why don't you care? Because she left me and I have a better girlfriend now? Murderer? Meh, no. So a lot of people have pointed fingers at JF Garapi as being responsible for his wife's disappearance. He says he dropped her off at a gas station about six months ago, and uh, she, she effectively hasn't been seen since. So w what are the odds that uh, this woman is still alive? And uh, JF portrays it as she's some kind of female James Bond, and she's a survivalist, and she just wanted to go off and... Uh, you know, live it, live in the woods and live off the grid, and uh, that that's what's going on. Count me highly skeptical. Now, is Israel winning this war in Gaza? I mean, I sure hope so. I'm a strong Zionist. I want the Jewish state to be strong and secure. I can't imagine any state that was attacked like Israel was attacked on October 7th not reacting in a similar way to Israel is reacting now, meaning that you hunt down and kill the group that uh, murdered your citizens. So if a Mexican drug gang like invaded San Diego and killed 1,200 Americans, all right, or if a, a foreign group uh, invaded London and killed 1,200 British citizens, or they did the same to Australians or to French or to the Dutch, right, I would expect that country to stop at nothing before destroying the group that slaughtered so many of its own citizens. So it's... To me, the Israeli response against Hamas is, is what I would expect from any nation state. In fact, I can't think of any nation state that has suffered something akin to this uh, without mounting a war. The closest example I can find is India. India suffered some uh, Muslim terror attacks, what, around 2010, 2011, and they didn't attack Pakistan, all right? So... That, that's the closest example I can think of of a nation state suffering you know, this sort of uh, terror attack. But even then, in, in India, it wasn't uh, hundreds and hundreds killed. What was the, the total death toll? About 100 as opposed to 1,200? Is uh, how to think about realist behavior versus moral behavior when you think about how a state should act in the international system. And I fully understand that states have a deep-seated interest in security competition for the purposes of maximizing their chances of surviving. And I fully understand that states sometimes do ruthless things to other states for good strategic reasons, okay? But at the same time, there has to be a moral dimension that underpins how states behave towards other states. And as long as there are no sort of strategic reasons or realist reasons for behaving ruthlessly, states should go to great lengths to act in a moral way. I have no problem making that argument. And I think in the case of what's going on inside of Gaza, uh, it, it, there is no strategic reason for Israel to destroy Palestinian society, to kill huge numbers of civilians. It, it just doesn't make good strategic sense. And I believe it is morally wrong. Uh, so this is why I am so deeply opposed to it. I think there's no question that Israel has the right, I use that word loosely, it has the right to go after uh, Hamas. Hamas attacked Israel, Israel can go after Hamas. And I understand that as Israel goes after Hamas, there's going to be collateral damage. Civilians are going to be killed. This happens in wartime. It is regrettable, but it is a basic fact of life. But it's very different than purposely targeting uh, civilians uh, for the purposes of inflicting massive pain and punishment on them. And again, this has no strategic logic. There's, there's no sort of realist reason for doing this. And therefore, I think it's deeply wrong. 
Do you see any chance at all America will, in any time, you know, close to now, turn off that tap? It's uh, a rare occasion when the United States puts scores of leverage on Israel, especially when it comes to dealing with the Palestinians. Uh, and that's because any government, including the Biden administration, understands full well that if we are to get rough with the Israelis, or we were to get rough with the Israelis, the Israel lobby would come after the administration hammer. Okay, here's uh, Mir Shima. Is Israel winning the war? I thought this was a, a bracing commentary. Well, it's very hard to say exactly how much damage they've done to Hamas because there's just not much information. The Israelis control who gets into Gaza, who gets out, what they see. Uh, and therefore, there's not a lot of hard facts in the media. And that includes the Israeli press uh, as well. My sense is that uh, they're not doing very well at all. First of all, the Israelis only control about 40% of Gaza. Just think about it. They control 40%. That means the other 60% uh, is territory where uh, Hamas can go and the Israelis can't get at them. Second, the Israelis have not captured any uh, hostages. That, that's quite surprising. If they haven't captured any hostages, that probably tells you a lot about their ability to find the Hamas fighters. Furthermore, if you look at the number of people that the Israelis have killed, the number is about 20,000, as you said before. And most people agree that about 70% of that 20,000 is women and children. So that would be 14,000. That means that the Israelis have killed 6,000 males. Now, those 6,000 males were certainly not all Hamas fighters. Uh, most of them, I'm sure, were innocent civilians. So let's say of the 6,000, 4,000 were civilians and 2,000 were Hamas fighters. I don't think that's the likely number, but let's give the Israelis the benefit of the doubt. That says that they've killed 2,000 Hamas fighters. Well, most people argue that Hamas had 30 to 40,000 fighters to start with. If they had 30 to 40,000 fighters and they've killed 2,000, that means they have a whole heck of a lot of fighters left. Finally, you just don't see any evidence of the Israelis capturing uh, uh, capturing Hamas fighters and then taking pictures of them or videos of them or parading them around. The people that they're parading around, the males that they're parading around and humiliating are in almost all cases civilians who they have captured and are interrogating. So I just don't see a lot of evidence that uh, the Israelis, the IDF, uh, is winning this war against Hamas. I think it's going to have to go on for a long time uh, if there's any hope of ultimately uh, decisively defeating Hamas. Given uh Found that uh, commonsensical commentary. All right, we we do seem to lack evidence that uh, Israel is is winning this war in in Gaza. Now they they may very well, and that evidence may may come in at a certain point. But uh, Wall Street Journal just reported over the weekend, Biden convinced Netanyahu to halt a preemptive strike against Hezbollah. So Hezbollah's got about one hundred fifty thousand rockets that many of them can reach anywhere in Israel. So anytime Hezbollah wants, they can rain down these rockets all over Israel, overwhelm Israel's air defense systems. And in 24 hours, thousands of Israelis would die and large parts of Jerusalem and uh, Tel Aviv would be destroyed, right? And Israel lives under that threat. So it's no wonder that Israel is using this Hamas attack as... A foundation for saying we're not going to live under this sort of threat by Hezbollah. I mean, no, no sane nation state would be willing to to live, you know, with with a group like Hezbollah, you know, right next door. So Israel's response to to want to wipe out Hezbollah completely makes sense to me.
But Wall Street Journal here, President Biden urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to hold a preemptive strike against Hezbollah forces in Lebanon days after Hamas militants' October 7 attack on southern Israel. Biden warned that such an attack could spark a wider regional war, which would really not be in America's best interest. Israel had intelligence, which the U.S. deemed unreliable, that Hezbollah attackers were preparing to cross the northern border in Israel as part of a multi-pronged attack. And so there have been about 100,000 Israelis evacuated from the north of Israel, right? Israel proper, Israel territory, Israeli communities and cities have been evacuated due to this threat from Hamas. And that, that can't go on, right? Israel can't go on with 200,000 of, of its citizens uh, pulled out from both southern Israel and northern Israel due to the, the threat of uh, terror attacks. So Israeli warplanes were apparently in the air awaiting orders when Joe Biden spoke to Netanyahu on October 11 and told the Israeli prime minister to stand down and think through the consequences of such an action. And uh, the Israelis did not go ahead and Hezbollah did not launch the attack that uh, Israel said that they were going to to launch. So Israel was preparing a massive attack on Hezbollah, which in all likelihood would have precipitated a massive Hezbollah attack on Israel and would have certainly widened the war. All right, uh, because it's coming up on, on Christmas, let's get a little bit of Nathan Kofnis. Well, I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, one of the world headquarters of political correctness. And I went to uh, uh, elementary, middle, and high school at uh, something called Ethical Culture, which was founded by Felix Adler, who was a reform rabbi who also played a, was a prominent figure in the development of political correctness. And a big part of the curriculum was about racism and what white people had done and all that. So I didn't really question that for the first several years of my life. Children don't really question things. Then maybe when I was 15, I started noticing the phenomena that were difficult to explain according to the racism theory. You know, people that I knew that grew up, as far as I could tell, under very similar conditions, tended to have slightly different averages and patterns in their behavior and uh, that sort of thing. But I assumed I must be confused, and certainly the idea that there are differences between these groups is just impossible because there hasn't been enough time for evolution to create differences, which is just some idea that I repeated with, without having any understanding of what I was saying. When I was 17 years old, I started taking uh, classes uh, as a visiting high school student at Columbia University which is where I eventually went to uh, get my BA. And I took an anthropology class on uh, the evolution of human behavior. And the professor mentioned that Australian Aborigines have a Brodmann's Area 17 that's something like uh, 25 to 50% larger than in uh, the European population. And he said, uh, the this is the area of the brain that's responsible for some uh, for vision. So he said, "Does that mean there's less room for something else?" I don't know. That's what he said. But as soon as he said that, it occurred to me that okay, I've been lied to 
it was a very shocking experience. You know, part of my identity was, you know, these beliefs that had, that had been imprinted on me about racism is responsible for all disparities. Yeah, it was, it was all, it was all a lie. And I became absolutely obsessed with intelligence research and race differences. And I just, I couldn't stop talking about it. Just to every person I met, I would explain I would explain these things. And even when I had college interviews, I told the college interview, interviewers about race differences. So I was interviewed by Harvard, for example, and I started <laughs> telling them about race differences. Okay, so if you got a larger Broadman's Area 17 in your brain, all right, what what resources are then given up, right? What does that mean, right? Is there then less room for something else? And obviously, the more the United States, for example, is occupied by the Middle East and occupied by the war in Ukraine, right, the fewer resources they have to devote to their principal enemy, China, and the rise of China, containing China. So just as with the human brain, so too in international relations, all right, if you get uh, highly developed in one area that inevitably take away from your life in or your strategies in another part of uh, the the world or your life. So Oliver Cromwell says Luke hates his audience. Like, where on earth would you get the idea that I have that you know passionate a feeling about my audience? I I'd say in my waking hours, I think about my audience. Uh, less than 0.1% of the time. So I'd say I probably think about myself about 90% of the time, and then about 9% of the time I think about the people who are closest to me, and and then, what, maybe 0.1% of the time, I, I perhaps less than 1.1% of the time, I, I think about my, my audience. So... People will try to manipulate you as you go through life, particularly if you give off the vibe that you're easily manipulated. And so the, the idea that I would hate my audience, no, I don't allow you to have a veto over what I say and do. Right? I am not going to conform myself. I'm not going to twist and, and contract and push and pull myself into being something that you desire. Right? I am going to try to create the best show that I can and the best life that I can. And sometimes creating the best life that I can means that I do no substantive streaming for a month. And so my life is, is more important to me than my live streaming. And I recognize that everything I say and do on a live stream is going to feed back into my real life, even if people that I'm interacting with in my real life don't actually see what I'm saying. I am influenced and I am affected and I am changed and I am trained by everything that I say and do on a live stream. So I comport my live stream and try to comport my life in my best interests. And my best interests may not be identical to your best interests. Different people have different interests. All right. So I, I'm not just creating for you right now. Right. I'm creating live streams that uh, I hope will go down in history, that will resonate in history. Gentlemen. The things that we say and do here, they will echo through eternity. I love that that movie, Gladiator. There's a terrific uh, Russell Crowe oration there. A little bit more 
here from Fox News on recent U.S. Supreme Court ruling. Well, that is the question, Robbie. Just briefly, first of all, I bet a lot of money if I was a betting man that the Supreme Court will overturn this. But what if red states just retaliate by kicking Joe Biden off the ballot, saying, you know, he didn't protect the border? I mean, we could plunge into chaos. Right. What if they say that anyone who supported Black Lives Matter, some of those protests became violent, things were burned down. Will they say, well, that was supporting an insurrection? This would be a kind of tit-for-tat that we don't want to play. Uh, it'd be very harmful. People should, of course, be able to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump or one of Donald Trump's opponents in the Republican primaries. Actually, there are people running against, uh, you never hear about this in the mainstream media, but there are people running on the Democratic side against Joe Biden oh, yeah. who are not getting heard from at all that he's just ignoring. So right. let's be principally pro-democracy on all fronts. Got to go. Uh, Laura Fink, Robbie Swabby, thanks very much for joining us this holiday. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. So how much of Gaza supports Hamas, right? In 2006, Hamas elected Gaza to, to run Gaza. They won that, that election. And now they're appalling. There's polling that uh, indicates that a uh, vast majority of Gazans support the Hamas massacre of Israeli civilians on October 7. So if that polling is accurate, right, that would make uh, the Israeli intense destruction of, of Gaza make much more sense, right? If you're going up against an implacable enemy who supports the massacre of your own civilians and they're right on your next door, it, it would make sense that you'd be ruthless. It's often been leveled against Israel by people such as General Petraeus, who have said, look, let's learn from America's mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Israel doesn't want to occupy Gaza um, after this conflict. So we're left in a scenario where there are no solutions. Now, the war in Gaza is stuck in a lethal loop. Hamas says it won't release any more hostages until Israel stops the war permanently. But Israel won't even pause attacks until Hamas offers to release more hostages. And there is no sign that the UN can do anything to interrupt the cycle. After days of talks, nations at the UN still haven't come up with a resolution that they can all agree on. So is there any way out of this nightmare? Let's try to imagine a better future and then work out how we get there with Barack Sina, who is a senior research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. Good morning. Thank you for coming Hi, in. Thanks so much for having me. So first of all, I mean, we were talking to a, a correspondent in Israel earlier on, and he was saying the real problem is no one is looking at what happens the first day after the war. Do we have any sense of what Gaza after the war could look like, could be governed? How's it looking right now? I, I think something that's often overlooked is um, the character, the culture that has been fostered, because that would contribute to a future Palestinian state. When we talk about a two-state solution, um, it's quite remarkable that we see it in an abstract humanitarian manner, but we don't see it in terms of the strategic implications that it holds for the West. Um, what type of state would it be? Would it be an Iran client state like Hezbollah in Lebanon or like the Houthis in Yemen? Uh, would that bode well for our security? And in order to determine that, I think it's important to unpack the um, sentiments that exist that has been uh, deeply in 
ingrained within the Palestinian population over generations. And there are two polls, that there are a number of polls out there, but there are two polls in particular that are, are very mainstream polls and they echo one another. And I think that they've been quite overlooked and it gives us a sense of what the Palestinian population is actually thinking. So... Um, very recently, the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, um, they, ha had, they polled uh, the Palestinian population in West Bank and Gaza, of which 72% of respondents believed that Hamas was correct for, it, for conducting the October the 7th massacre. Uh, this was echoed by the Birzeit University poll on November the 4th. It has the Arab World for Research and Development that posed the question, how much do you support the military operation carried out by the Palestinian resistance led by Hamas on October the 7th? In Gaza, 63.6% supported the attack, and in the West Bank it was higher, it was 83%. Now, even earlier than this, um, you know, you could say this is a product of increased radicalization due to the conflict, but in June, prior to the October the 7th attacks, the Palestinian Centre for Policy and Survey Research uh, noted that in Gaza, 79% and in the West Bank, 66% favoured forming armed groups such as Lions Den and Janine Battalion to strike at Israel. More than 85% said that the Palestinian Authority had no right to arrest members of these armed groups to prevent them from conducting attacks against Israel. So in that case... Right, so what are the chances for some peaceful resolution of this conflict with these kind of attitudes? Israel's strategy of annihilating Hamas would sound like it's not going to work because you can't defeat an ideology. And it sounds like, if those polls are correct, that, that if there is a support for... Well, you can defeat an ideology. It's not the same as defeating a nation state and it's not the same as crushing the military capabilities of a terror group, but you can defeat an ideology. Usually an ideology that is embraced by a nation state, such as Nazism and uh, Germany, all right, Nazism was crushed effectively when Germany was crushed. So yeah, you, you can defeat an ideology, right? ISIS was, was crushed. Well, that ideology, isn't there just a danger that another group like Hamas Okay, let's uh, welcome to the show oh. Elliot Blatt. What's going on, bro? Uh, blessings, bro. Merry Kaufness. Merry um, Kaufness to you. Hey, I was thinking about this. Um, how appropriate is the comparison to Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Uh, so the U.S. dropping of an atomic bomb on <clears throat> Japan during World War II versus, you know, Israel's pretty, uh, you know, Robust, yeah, robust, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's very uh, it's it's very similar. I think yeah. it make, makes it because there are very good arguments against uh, dropping the nuclear bombs and very good arguments for dropping them. Uh, most of us are not losing sleep over you know what was done to Japan in the dropping of those nuclear bombs, and uh, most people who support the, the Jewish state and not losing sleep over, you know, Gazan suffering too. So, yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of similarities. And with all 
comparisons and analogies, you can find lots of ways where the analogy and comparison holds up, and then you can find ways that it doesn't hold up. Uh, but uh, to me, I, I think there is a good comparison. Yeah, that's, that's just so thinking. Uh, how many died in Nagasaki, uh, Hiroshima? Do you, do you know the number? What's the I, I, some, I think something like uh, something like 200,000, so atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So uh, in Hiroshima, about 100,000 civilians killed and about uh, 10 to 20,000 uh, soldiers killed. And then at Nagasaki, about 60 to 80,000 civilians killed. So total somewhere between 130,000, 230,000 deaths total. Okay. I was just curious. All right. <clears throat> you know, it's very unpleasant to think about all this, but <clears throat> uh, that's how I'm thinking about it now. Yeah. Um, now, part two is, is Hamas really fighting for Palestinian people or are they just fighting basically for themselves? Uh, meaning that there's just a lot of there's there's a lot of economic incentives uh, for Hamas fighters to sort of keep this thing going and festering because, you know, lots of money and aid material comes their way and there's just opportunities for profit there. Uh, and there's just very there's no money for peace. Right. There's always money for conflict. Now. Do you really, do you believe that, you know, ha, let's, do you believe Hamas's story that they're, do you believe that Hamas is truly fighting for the Palestinians or at least the Gazans? Yes, I, I, I do believe that. I, I don't believe they're just in it for money and, and power. I believe that they have a hero system that, that drives them. I believe essentially that what most of what they say, just like w w with what Osama bin Laden said after 9-11, I believe that it's pretty accurate. Okay, so that, um, all right, you know, fair enough. I mean, I have no evidence either way. I have no way of thinking about it. But, uh, you know, like I do think of, I use, I compare Hamas to Black Lives Matter. And uh, I don't see Black Lives Matter as an authentic um, expression of Black aspirations. I see it as, you know, a rather cynical way to raise funds. Um, and these, you know, we can talk about the origins of Black Lives Matter, et cetera, but all of these sort of uh, protest groups or these quote unquote liberation groups, they're, they're, you know, they're not interested in the solution, it doesn't seem to me. They're, they're interested in perpetuating a conflict. Uh, so... I think within their own hero system that they are fighting for the the heroic ends that they talk about. Now, you don't, you and I don't think that Black Lives Matter is an effective group promoting black interests, but I do believe that that most of the people in it uh, do do believe in their cause. Now, some of them are cynical, but most of us just get blinded by a combination of our hero system and by incentives. So you can never expect someone to believe something if uh, believing it will cost them their income. And so if, you know, you've got a good little owner with your Black Lives Matter agitation or your Hamas agitation, uh, you, you will become blind to, you know, contrary arguments that would undermine your, 
your source of income and prestige. Yeah. And, you know, part three is, I've mentioned this before, but you can't help but notice the overlap between sort of your average Palestinian supporter and your, you know, your sort of traditional woke activist, right? There's this basic thread of resentment that runs through these quote unquote movements. And um, it, it just seems to be more of the same as far as I'm concerned. Well, yeah, I mean, every every group ha- has reasons to feel oppressed, all right? right. Uh, I mean, I mean there, there's no group solidarity. There's no nationalism without a similar feeling of oppression. And so it's the most normal, natural feeling in the world. And then those who can tap into and exploit that normal, natural feeling are, are much more likely to have success than those who go against natural feeling. Okay, but let's say you are an American... You live in America, either Arab American or something like that. You you claim to really care about the fate of the Palestinians, right? I don't understand. I've never understood why there's been no pressure whatsoever from these communities to talk to to persuade, um, you know, uh, Israel's neighbors, Syria, Jordan, etc., Egypt to let some of these people in, right? Now, it it just, it seems this quote-unquote love and support for Palestinians just seems really disingenuous. They, Yeah, I don't think it's disingenuous at all. By persuading these neighboring states to take Palestinians in, you're, except you are signing off on no, no, the, no, the I'm ethnic not cleansing. The I understand the reason that the, I, I sorry to interrupt like that, but because we've been down this path, I want to talk about something slightly different. Like, I, I understand why uh, those countries don't want them to accept them, but what I don't understand is why there is no pressure, right, from Palestinian advocates for them to accept them. That's the, Because what those, I, I those Palestinian advocates would be advocating for acceding to the Jewish state's ethnic cleansing of their people. Why would they accede to that? Why, why would they support that? And, and what would be the repercussions for them in communal life? They would be shunned at, at, at best, if not assassinated. All right, let's forget about like, people, like actual ethnically Arab Palestinian people in the U.S. Let's just talk about the others, like the, the leftists, uh, the right. white leftists right. in America who right. purport to be supporting the Palestinians. Palestinians yeah. There's no effort. I don't see any voices making this claim. You would expect a few, wouldn't you? No, because these would be voices saying, we need to accede to the Jewish state's ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people. Why, why, would, why would you expect left-wing voices to say, we need to accede to a white people, you know, Jews, uh, ethnically cleansing a brown people from their midst and we need to make that easier for the Jewish people to ethnically cleanse the, the brown people from their midst. No, I, I would not expect that. Well, these people are effectively cheering on the suicide missions of these quote-unquote brown people or these, you know, hapless victims to just run into the buzzsaw that is the Israeli military. I, I don't see... 
I don't know. I, it would give me pause, right? If I really cared about Palestinians to just cheer on their just suicide mission. And I don't understand why people don't make this argument on our side of the fence that, you know, they're really doing harm. Because these Hamas uh, militants, they, they count on this reaction, right? They plan their strategy around the reaction of, you know, Western leftists to throw tantrums um, by, you know, they commit Hamas. You know, it is a whole, it is a war crime to, uh, you know, burrow yourself into uh, civilian areas to conduct military operations. This is truly, you know, a war crime, and it goes unindicted uh, among Palestinian activists. Right, because people love their, their team and they hate their team's enemies. I mean, that's true for sports and it's true for politics and true for, for culture and live streamers. Like, think about the culture of live streamers. Inevitably, you get groups who support one particular live streamer and they go to online war against that, that live streamer's, you know, competitors. I mean, think about the disruptive effect of, you know, Howard Stern supporters on other shows. They would just go around deliberately disrupting other shows because they love Howard Stern so much. So I, I think tribalism, nationalism, preferring your own in-group and therefore hating your in-group's enemies is the normal natural default in humanity. And so th there's nothing that I find particularly perplexing or surprising among advocates of free Palestine. Um, I, I'm not perplexed. I'm not. Okay, a I'm not surprised by this because I see it as I see it as bullshit. I see it as you know, just resentful people, you know, trying to nail their colors to the mast of another, you know, uh, political movement that's sort of rooted in resentment. Right, but your your political movement's rooted in resentment. Everyone's political movement's rooted in resentment. Oh, not they, me, bro. I see they, through the bullshit. I see through the bullshit. I don't play the resentment game, bro. I am just emanating love and conclusion. You know, that's all I do, bro. I just like this celestial body that just emits light. I no resentment here, dude. You can't pin that on me, man. I mean, every every political group is animated by resentment, and every political force ultimately every political force ultimately sides with the use of force to accomplish their goals it's just that uh, Hamas supporters and free Palestine supporters they just simply have a different hero system from you and me but th there's no you know objective hero system in the universe that rules one of us is right and one of us is wrong they're all we're talking about here are competing hero systems they have a different hero system from you and me This, Ronnie Goldman's really had a huge impact on you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's good. He has, hasn't he? I, I find it so uh, helpful to my to my thinking. No, that's right. I mean, you are right when you talk about people do. You know, they you know having an external enemy does galvanize one's identity. Like last week when the when the Forty ers just crushed those vermin. You know, yes, so, it just really made me feel like a you know, feels great, really, doesn't it, bro? Oh, it feels great. I feel like a, like a just a super San Franciscan, bro. It was just so nice to see those weasels get just pulverized. <clears throat> anyway, and it's a good way to well, bond. Anyway. 
it's a good way to bond, right? You connect with, with your fellow San Franciscans and, and, and you get a testosterone boost. It's a very gossamer thin bond, bro. It's sort of, it's as soon as you walk out the door, the bond is shattered. Though. Bro, it's you as thick it. as you make it. Right. There, there's a whole loving family ready and willing to embrace you, but you have to do the work. It yeah, works if you work steps. it. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. All right. And well, today's the day. Doesn't work. Go. Doesn't work if you don't work it. No, it's oh, bloody hell. This is why you're not getting the benefits. Today is not the day. The 49ers play tomorrow. The greatest game of the NFL season is tomorrow, and you weren't aware right. of that. We've got the 11 and 3 49ers against the 11 and 3 Baltimore Ravens at 5:20 uh, p.m. Uh, West Coast time tomorrow, Chris, Christmas Day. It's just going to be an incredible game. I didn't know that. Uh, I thought the Ravens were in the other division. I thought they were the AFC. They're in another league, but they still, they're in the American Football Conference, not the National Football Conference, but they, they still play each other. And so this is, remember when the Ravens beat the 49ers in, in the Super Bowl? What was that? That was about 10, uh, 12 years ago? I don't remember. I'm a very, you know... I'm a, I'm a recent convert to the NFL, bro, so I don't know the history. I'm sorry. Okay, so but do you think you, you might step back into a sports bar? Uh, well, it's Christmas, and I, don't, I doubt the bar would be open on Christmas, would it? I'm, yeah, you're right. Day. You're right. I, I rocked up to a sports bar on Thanksgiving Day, and I was quite surprised and embarrassed to find that it was shut. You had a handful of beef organ capsules, and you, you were ready. You were going to order a ready. water, oh. club soda. And down the hatch they were going to go, and yet you were you were cock blocked. I, I was embarrassed. It's like I mean, I was thinking, you know, ordinary people know this. Uh, it's like uh, yeah. it's like you, you go to work and suddenly everyone exchanges, you know, gives gifts on, on Christmas, but you weren't ready or prepared for this. So some normal part of you know the human experience somehow is just like passed you by. Oh. So everyone gives you a gift, but you haven't gotten anything for anyone. Awkward. Awkward. I, I've been there, bro. All right. Well, that's all I got, man. I I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to draw this out any further than it needs to go. All right. Blessings, Mary. Mary Kaufness. Okay, Mary Kaufness to you. All right. Uh, let's uh, tune in here. Get a little bit of Fox raising news. tensions and ramping up attacks in the Middle East. The Pentagon says a U.S. destroyer in the Red Sea shot down several drones Saturday, all launched from parts of Yemen controlled by Iran-backed Houthi rebels, all appearing to target commercial ships sailing in international waters. No word of injuries, but the U.S. calls it an escalation of hostilities. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Fox News Live. I'm Anita Vogel. Arthel Neville and Eric Sean are off this weekend. Hi, Brian. Hi, Anita. And I'm Brian Yenis. The latest attacks by Iran's proxies come as Israeli defense forces push deeper into southern Gaza, expanding their campaign against Hamas. Meanwhile, President Biden and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu talked by phone Saturday about the next steps in the war. But Biden said he did not bring up a ceasefire. Let's start off with Trey Yinks live in Tel Aviv with more. Hey, Trey. Hey, Brian, good afternoon. Israeli forces continue to go after Hamas cells inside Gaza, though they are facing fierce resistance. The IDF says this weekend alone, 
15 of their soldiers were killed in battles, many of them taking place since the ground operation began around Gaza's second largest city of Khan Yunis, where reports indicate not only Hamas battalions are engaging the Israelis, but also smaller factions like PFLP. The urban battle environment with a vast network of tunnels is making the clearing process extremely difficult. Our fighters are fighting in complex areas for fighting. An area like Khan Yunus is also a dense area. We also locate the terrorist infrastructure, especially underground. In Khan Yunus, we expanded the engineering forces there. This division has a large number of forces than the usual number for Division 98. This is what the activity requires. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke today ahead of the weekly cabinet meeting, indicating that Israel will continue its ground operation against Gaza with full force. Netanyahu also pushed back on the idea that the United States is influencing Israeli decisions on the battlefield following a phone call yesterday that he had with President Biden. Now, Biden said after that call he did not ask for a ceasefire, though the administration has publicly and privately pressured Israel to reduce the number of civilian casualties amid the war. All of this taking place on the ground inside Gaza amid new concerns along Israel's northern border with Lebanon. And, of course, regionally, when you see on Saturday, Houthis in Yemen launching new drones against U.S. forces in the Red Sea. Brian? Trey, wishing you and the crew there a very happy, merry, and safe holiday. Thank you for all the work this year. Trey. Okay, let's get back to this analysis. Comes in and fills the vacuum. I think it's a really important point that you've made um, because it can be addressed in two dimensions. The first dimension is um, at the end of World War II, the West successfully defeated fascism and Nazism. There was, if you would have surveyed uh, West Germans at the end of World War II, there was a, still a high degree of support for Hitler. Um, this was way after World War II had finished, but liberal ideology took root and thrived, flourished there. The second thing uh, that is also important, by the way, we also beated, uh, we beat, sorry, communism um, at the end of the Cold War. Um, we are not really afraid of communism taking root in Europe or fascism and Nazism taking root. Uh, the second thing is about counter-radicalization. Uh, there's a critique that's often been leveled against Israel by people such as General Petraeus, who have said, look, let's learn from America's mistakes in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, whereby we had our counterinsurgency strategy to peel away radical Sunnis away from Al-Qaeda. That only worked very briefly during the 2007 surge when American forces were stationed there and occupying that area. As soon as US forces left, it spiked once again. Israel doesn't want to occupy Gaza um, after this conflict. So we're left in a scenario where there are no solutions and um, all this clever sophistry that is bounded about also constitutes disinformation because I think that policymakers need to be realistic and may consider, okay, what happens if there are no effective policy prescriptions? What happens if a Palestinian state would be radicalized? And what happens if we're not able to de-radicalize them, even if the conflict wouldn't have taken place? By the way, just one last thing. There has never been a successful counter-extremism, counter-radicalization strategy ever implemented, whether it be domestically in the West or abroad. With all the with all the um, expressions of winning hearts in mind. Wait, we had a pretty strong denazification program in Germany after World War II. Was that was that useful? Was there anything similar in Japan after World War II? The United States occupied Germany and Japan after World War II and helped 
to shape them into the productive first world countries they are today. It's just never been successful. What about the role of... Well, it's never been successful in Arab Muslim countries. For example, the Palestinian Authority, which is seen as a more moderate uh, political organisation. I think that the problem with statecraft is that we attempt to frame things in a way that fits our policy toolkit. So we are looking for an actor that exists in order to assume responsibility and take it off our hands. Um, however, it, we conveniently overlook the fact that the Palestinian Authority um, it initially denied the October the 7th attack. Subsequently, it legitimised the October the 7th attack. And even prior, it had a culture. Abbas fostered this pay-for-slay um, martyrdom fund where it would pay the families of suicide bombers that were attacking Israel. So, jihad is something which is very, very mainstream across the West Bank and across Gaza. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a Palestinian local voice which has a lot of support that could responsibly assume this task. I mean, this is depressing because it, it just sounds like there, there is no... There is no solution there because one of the things that has come out since the October 7th attacks is about trust. Neither side trusts the other side. Neither side feels at the moment that, that there is a, a way forward. So how do you cut a way forward? It just sounds incredibly depressing. It is incredibly depressing and I think that policymakers sometimes need to look into the abyss and recognise the fact that there is an abyss. Um, it's depressing in Afghanistan. So as someone who's written and spoken about the, the darker side of life publicly since 1997, just countless the number of times I've been warned to stop looking into the abyss. And I would uh, say back that some people can handle looking into the abyss. Some people can handle looking into the abyss occasionally. Some people should avoid looking into the abyss. Most people can handle looking into the abyss at times. Most people should not look into the abyss, you know, seven days a week. But uh, why not look into the abyss on weekends, right? Why not look onto the look into the abyss in a way that's adaptive and, and conducive to human thriving. All right, there's a time and a place for the abyss. It's depressing in Iraq. Um, if I look across the Middle East, apart from Gulf states that seek to economically diversify, it's incredibly depressing. I mean, look at Lebanon. Um, Iran has had this strategy of utilising its proxies to... Just to make to turn state, states into fail, failed states or failing states. When Iran looks... Like, the abyss is like Adderall, all right? If you are diagnosed with ADHD and it's a proper diagnosis, then, then taking Adderall will calm you down and it will enhance your life. But I know a lot of people who've taken Adderall you know, without a prescription, and it's, it's made them hyper, it's made them unable to sleep, it's uh, had, had a devastating effect on your life. So some people can handle some caffeine, some, some chocolate. Other people need to completely avoid these substances. And some people can delve into the abyss. Some people can handle their Adderall and some people can't. We, we have to be cognizant of our weaknesses. It's Lebanon. It doesn't look at Lebanon. Like we all have an erotic roadmap, right? We all have love maps, all right? We all have erotic scenarios against which we will feel almost helpless. And uh, I'm a man of tremendous dignity, right? Uh, I am not innocent. I am not without knowledge of acts of love, right? I have experienced acts of love. I have experienced incredibly intense pleasure. And I've experienced the most intense pleasure in my life from 
you know, one-on-one encounters with attractive young women. And these were not democratic, right? These were not open to the world. These were not inclusive, right? I was not looking to bring everyone into this, you know, intense thing that we, we had going on, right? It was, it was a closed interaction. And if either one of us, we didn't talk about this, but if either one of us strayed out of this, you know, closed circle, then that was the end of our relationship that uh, facilitated these intense acts of love. So I, I'm a man of, of tremendous dignity and restraint. I'm not going into great detail about, you know, acts of love. But suffice to say, there are certain scenarios, there are certain journeys along my, my love map that are just incredibly enticing to me that uh, significantly reduce my, my abilities to do other things when I start undertaking those journeys. And so someone who, who's been on a path towards uh, emotional sobriety over the past 10 years, I found that it, it serves me to not get started on these love maps, all right, and, unless, unless they're going to be completed in a, in, a, in a fashion that is conducive to human flourishing. But if it's just going to be some kind of onanistic journey, then I want to avoid taking the first step on these erotic love maps. Now, I may take the first step, then I want to avoid taking the second. If I take the second, I really want to avoid taking the third, all right? We, we all have vulnerabilities, all right? We all have these love maps where certain scenarios, certain situations, you know, are presented to us, and we become quite weak in the knees. It looks like, it looks at Hezbollah's stun, right, which is much more powerful than the Lebanese army. It is the de facto state in Lebanon. If it looks at Yemen, it doesn't see Yemen, it sees Houthistan. The Houthis are dominating there. Um, they've embedded, just like what Hamas has done and what Hezbollah has done, they've embedded their military capacities within urban civilian population centers. Um, if you look at Iraq, Iranian militias have absolutely devastated Iraq. So Gaza is not a unique exception. When I look across the Middle East, I see no reason for any optimism. Gosh, well, listen, thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us this morning. Very grateful to you. That is Barack Sino. We'll stop regardless of what the United Nations, uh, you know, passes as a resolution until they feel they've uh, at least degraded Hamas to a point where they're not an immediate threat to Israel before they then look at transitioning to what they're calling this low-intensity uh, conflict. I wouldn't be fooled by that. I've been in a lot of things that were called low-intensity conflict, and they don't look low-intensity to those that are there. But it would be much less kinetic, much less uh, you know, large-scale diameter bombs being used in more special operations. Let me ask you, first of all, about um, that grim death toll. Um, it does come from the health ministry in Gaza, which is run by Hamas. Um, but it does appear that most who analyze these figures and are looking at the situation um, think that this figure of 20,000 people killed in Gaza is probably reasonably accurate. I think that's right. I mean, we're going to be suspect of anything that comes out of Hamas, but I do agree that most analysts that looked at this think that's that's somewhere around the right number. And even if it's close, that is a lot of uh, innocent people that were killed. And unfortunately, we're not we're not at the end, not at the end of the military campaign. And of course, there's also a significant issue of humanitarian aid, getting it in there to the extent that people could actually start starving, which of course would add to the, the death of civilians in Gaza. So it's certainly a, a horrible situation, however you look at it. 
And those figures, the images coming from Gaza, have added to the international pressure on Israel um, to do more to avoid civilian deaths. But that statement from Benjamin Netanyahu tonight uh, sounded pretty defiant. Well, I think uh, from Israel's point of view, they're not going to stop until they've met their objectives in the military destruction of Hamas. I think a lot of people talk about how you can't destroy Hamas, and I think they're right. It's an ideology. But you can destroy the tunnels, you can destroy the arsenal, and you can capture or kill the leadership. And I think uh, most countries that were attacked, like they were on October 7th, would have that as their objective. I can't imagine any country would leave that uh, that uh, threat to them in place. Uh, so he's defiant, yes, but I think um, whoever was in charge of Israel uh, uh, would also have those objectives in mind in any country, again, that was attacked like that. Right. So the media likes to focus. The problem here is Bibi Netanyahu. But whoever would be in charge of Israel in this kind of situation would pursue these kind of tactics and strategies. Who, who, Any nation state, right, after 1,200 of its citizens were massacred, would pursue these kind of strategies and tactics. Would also have those similar objectives. We've had um, days of negotiations in the United, at the United Nations in New York. Um, clearly, the U.S. has had concerns about some of the wording of various resolutions, which are essentially seeking to add to the pressure for, if not a ceasefire, then a pause in the fighting. Um, but given Israel's, I mean, frankly, contempt for the United Nations, how important do you think these maneuverings at the Security Council really are? So it does obviously indicate what the international community uh, thinks and certainly would like to see happen. But I do think Secretary Blinken has made a pretty substantial point. Uh, Israel was attacked. They are trying to destroy the, the attackers. And, and quite frankly, even if they did have a ceasefire before they met that objective, who's to say Hamas wouldn't attack them the next day? And then the ceasefire would be over. So there should be uh, requirements on both sides of this, of obviously to include the release of all these innocent hostages uh, and the in influx, uh, major influx of humanitarian aid. But that should be included. And I think that's more in line with the truce. And I think that's what's happening right now with uh, Director Burns, uh, Director uh, Barnea, the Mossad director, and the Prime Minister of Qatar right now in Poland. I think that's what they're talking about, uh, getting back to that truce like we had before, where a certain amount of hostages, purportedly around 40, would come out for a week's worth of truce, which could, of course, aid in bringing in all the food, water, and medicine that's needed. So I think that's what's happening and perhaps why the United States is asking for a delay, because those are, are parallel discussions and negotiations. But that is obviously not going to have a huge impact overall on the shape of the conflict that we're seeing here. Yeah, the one week, uh, I think it will as far as having the ability to bring in aid. I imagine that if uh, the, the leadership of Hamas is feeling the pressure of the IDF, if they're getting close and they, they think they are to capturing them, uh, that they're going to ask for this because they're going to want to do the same thing as they did last time, which is to freeze the uh, combat uh, troops in place, and they'll try to maneuver so they can get away from where they are. So that's going to be, and, and hopefully that results in uh, hostages being released, of course, and also aid being brought in. But it won't be the end. But I don't think Israel will stop, regardless of what the United Nations uh, you know, passes as a resolution, until they feel they've uh, at least degraded Hamas to a point where they're not an immediate threat to Israel before they then look at transitioning to what they're calling this low-intensity 
a conflict. I wouldn't be fooled by that. I've been in a lot of things that were called low-intensity conflict, and they don't look low-intensity to those that are there. But it would be much less kinetic, much less uh, you know, large-scale diameter bombs being used in more special operations. I'm just um, looking at a uh, report coming in suggesting that uh, a senior Palestinian official is looking at the talks which are being held in Cairo, which appear to have been attended by the Hamas leader Ishmael Hania, and these presumably are going to have uh, more of an likely to have more of an immediate effect on any pause in the fighting. Um, but uh, the, the meetings today have apparently ended without results. Um, but at least there are those negotiations going on, and the United States clearly does feel that those could lead to some kind of agreement. Yes, and I think that uh, there's a connection there. So Hania's in with the Egyptian intelligence service in Cairo, and then you have the other intelligence chiefs, including the all right, so the person speaking here is former United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East, Mick Mulroy. Mossad and the Qatari Prime Minister in Poland. I think they are connected. They might not have wanted to have been in the same room for political reasons, but I think they are connected. I think that's how the negotiations are heading toward, hopefully, uh, this, this potential for another truce in the fighting. So I'm, I've been thinking a lot the last uh, week or so why is populism so popular, but neoconservatism, which is not popular, so influential? And and so I put uh, power, I put populism into YouTube, and then a related video came up. It was on power by a guy named Eric Liu, an author, and he knows power is the ability to have other people do what you want them to do. And you know, it's the primary sources of political power, of physical force, money, state action, social norms, ideas, and numbers. So populism has numbers. And so the American people, by and large, prefer a somewhat isolationist U.S. foreign policy, while the, almost the entire U.S. foreign policy establishment likes to be intervening all over God's green acre. So neoconservatism lacks numbers, but at various times they have punched well above their weight in the other elements of power, such as they've been able to direct the use of force by the American military overseas. They are amply funded. They are able to push the levers of state action. They have been incredibly influential with regard to social norms and ideas because they're so well-funded. So there are dozens of scholars who pump out books and articles and media appearances, you know, pushing the interventionist neoconservative line for more use of American armed forces overseas, right? Their support is a few, but their powers at times have been quite vast. And one formidable neocon think tank is the Institute for the Study of War. So ever since the October 7 attacks by Hamas on southern Israel, I've often left Fox News on uh, in the background when I'm doing other things, like I'm, I'm listening to a podcast or I'm, I'm cleaning and I just have Fox News playing in the background. And I haven't noticed one expert come onto Fox News since October 7 and urge a more restrained more isolationist, a more humble U.S. foreign policy. It just seems like every single expert going on Fox News is promoting more American intervention overseas. One formidable neocon think tank, which keeps ending up in the news and supplying experts for the news, is the Institute for the Study of War, right? And it was founded in response to the stagnation of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and its core funding has been provided by defense contractors. So the Institute for the Study of War, you know, pushed a hawkish American approach to, for more U.S. military intervention overseas. They wanted to arm the, the quote-unquote moderate rebels in Syria. 
so that a state friendly to the United States would emerge in the wake of the fall of Assad. We have uh, constant uh, support for missile strikes on Iran and uh, using the surge strategy in Iraq. All right, more and more U.S. intervention is what these neocons favor. So which think tanks, by contrast, favor a populist foreign policy that is tailored to American interests? I can't think of one. So which pundits favor the same thing? I can only think of Tucker Carlson. And uh, in 2006, John Mearsheimer and Professor Stephen Walt wrote a controversial paper, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. And he notes that uh, uh, it's often said that Israel enjoys you know, vast popular support in the United States, but that's not true. Americans primarily care about America. There is you know, some support for, for Israel, certainly more support for Israel than support for Hamas or for the Palestinians. But overall, Americans are overwhelmingly uh, on the side of American interests. They don't want American boys dying overseas. One of the main driving forces behind the 2003 Iraq war was a small band of neoconservatives, many with close ties to Israel's Likud party. And so when President Bush attempted to sell the war in Iraq, right, America's most important Jewish organizations rallied as one to his defense. This is from the Jewish Daily Forward. In statement after statement, Jewish community leaders stressed the need to rid the world of Saddam Hussein and his weapons of mass destruction. And the ed this editorial says, concern for Israel's safety rightfully factored into the deliberations of the main Jewish groups. Now, Jewish leaders were highly supportive of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, but the broader American Jewish community was not. So polls showed that as a group, Jews were 10% less supportive of the Iraq war than the American population at large. So the main expert I see on Fox News all the time is retired General Jack Keane. And whenever he's on, he's always pushing for more direct military confrontation with, with Iran. So the, the neocons seem to have the insiders and many of the experts and the institutions and the billionaires often on their side. And without the support of insiders, experts, institutions, and billionaires, it's hard to get anything done. So thinking of populist uprisings that didn't get a lot done, I'd include MAGA, Make America Great Again, the Tea Party, and the Arab Spring, uh, popul or populist uprisings that had relatively few accomplishments. Now, elites can't rule against a united people, all right? Elites need to cut deals with parts of a nation to rule, so elites tend to prefer multiculturalism to national unity because... A unified people is is very likely to you know, re rebel, rebel against elite rule. So I'm just looking at a terrific 2001 essay about this topic. It's called "The Ideology of Anti-Populism and the Administrative State." It was written by one of my favorite philosophers, Stephen Turner. The people, the state, and expertise form an unstable triad, and relating the three in a coherent way, either institutionally or theoretically, is ultimately not possible. Now, populism is, as a political idea, is a belief in the virtue of the people. A populist, let us say, is a democrat, small d, who is satisfied with his own and with the people's virtue. So the populist is not necessarily a progressive reformer, right? The reformer is satisfied with his own virtue, but not with other people's. Giving over government to the people is not the same as lecturing them. So 
progressivism takes this tack of supporting rule by experts and lecturing the people. So when you consume the news, all right, I subscribe to all these different publications, starting with Apple News Plus, and then LA Times, New York Times, Washington Post. I get The Atlantic, The New Yorker, New York Magazine, The Guardian through Apple News Plus. And I often feel when I just want to go read the news that I'm getting lectured usually about our democracy is under threat, which is not literally about democracy, it's about democratic institutions who are dominated by the left. So progressives are very much aligned with wanting to lead the people and lecture the people, and they would do this in the name of the people, but they want rule by experts and, and the right kind of people who are willing to submit to science, to expertise. So you got the prohibition movement, which used techniques presently associated with climate science under the heading alcohol science. So anti-populism means the, the rule by elites and by experts. So the anti-populist is not satisfied with the people's virtue, but he has a problem. To deny populism is to deny democracy and the idea that people are the best governors of themselves. So anti-populism must pretend to be democratic but it cannot overtly deny the myth of the people ruling themselves. So they have to redefine the democratic idea. And you see this when elites lecture us and the media lectures us about dangers to democracy. It's not about the will of the people being carried out because the elites and the media don't want the will of the people being carried out. Often, say, Proposition 187, when government benefits were to be denied to people in the country illegally, all right, the California Supreme Court overturned that, ruled it was unconstitutional, and elite supported that overthrowing of the will of the people. What, what uh, the news media usually means by our democracy is at threat is that our institutions are at threat, and our institutions tend to be dominated by people on the liberal left. So anti-populism consists of myths and fictions about democracy, right? It's not real democracy. It's what the people would want if they had come around to an appropriately educated perspective. So the instincts on the left are the people are insufficiently educated, and we need to educate them, bully them, lecture them, incentivize them to a more elevated way of living, the instincts on the right are to be afraid of strangers, to be afraid of contamination, and to be afraid of disorder. The instinct on the left is to be most afraid of ignorance. So democracy means rule by the people. And populism wants rule by the people. Now, expertise adds complexity to relations between the rulers and the ruled. Right, because experts are making claims that are simply not fathomable, fathomable by those who lack expertise. So populism, when it asserts the superior wisdom of the people, rejects the identification of power with expertise. It doesn't want a government that is legitimated by experts. It wants a government that is legitimated by democratic accountability, by elections. Now, the opposite of populism is rule by elites and rule by experts. So elites rule through particular strategies, right? Elite solidarity is usually essential to elite rule. That's why 
we live in in a society in the United States of America where it seems like almost all the elites are opposed to Donald Trump. So elites tend to solidify in many areas. So elites rule through alliances between the elite and a significant non-elite group. And so the most stable of these alliances have been with the middle classes, normally under the ideology of meritocracy, property rights, the support of business, and then that would exclude the poor. But an upstairs-downstairs alliance is always possible. That's what we have with the Democrats. They ally with the top of society and the bottom of society against the white Christian middle. So pluralism favors the elites because it provides more opportunities to change alliances. Populism, by contrast, must produce unity in the population to effectively counter the elite and must therefore transcend differences between segments of society in the name of the people. So both the left and the right populisms are anti-pluralist. Right? Populism cannot succeed if the elite uses its alliance-making power to divide the movement. So to the extent that elite rule depends upon manipulating and shifting alliances with non-elite groups, that is the norm. So an attack on pluralism is usually experienced by the elite as a threat to elite rule and a threat to institutions who are dominated by elites. Like Everything's going to go to hell right? if we don't have, have pluralism. All right, you're saying 40. We are over an hour into this stream. You haven't played anything from Decoding the Gurus. Like, what the, what the, heck, is, what the heck is going on here? Latest Decoding the Gurus was a decoding of Sam Harris. So let's do a little bit here on Sam Harris. Right, so here we go, a bit chat about that. And it's not just anonymity. Anonymity is part of it, but it, it's also people you know who are captured by their echo chamber, which you're not seeing, right? Like it's this illusion that you're in, inhabiting the same space with the people you're, you're in conversation with. But in reality, they're talking to their fans. You're talking to your fans. You're kind of, you have weaponized your fans against their fans and, and vice versa. And without even necessarily thinking in those terms, that's that those are the the network dynamics of what's happening and um i mean i just i just kept getting I mean, I, at one point i recognized that barring some you know bad health outcomes in among friends and family over the years objectively the the worst things that had happened to me in a decade were the result of my engagement with twitter um and in, in many cases, the only bad things that had happened to me in a decade uh, of any significance at all what was born of Twitter. Fair to say, not a big fan of the Twitter. This comes up quite a lot in Sam's own episodes and in other conversations. Like he takes the leaving of Twitter to be highly significant. And he regards social media as hugely deranging of his priorities and other people's priorities and that kind of thing. So I think for Sam, it's uh, symbolic or illustrates a, a broader theme. We could say more about that. Has Sam got more to say about this? Yes, he does. Here's what life after Twitter is like. What is life like after Twitter? Uh, it is immensely improved uh, to a degree that I find 
actually embarrassing in retrospect because it's a, you know it's proof that I was needlessly degrading the quality of my life for um, it was twelve years technically I think it was probably five years where it was actually degrading the quality of my life but it it was um, I mean in retrospect it was a psychological experiment that we all got enrolled in and no one you know read the consent form much less signed it and it we it it has given a for me I mean, if you're someone who has a significant platform and you're at all controversial i think it gives you a sense of what the world is which um is basically false and destructive to your your feeling the feelings you have for the the rest of humanity i mean it was it was it was kind of sort of incrementally like like a slow ratchet um but never to be reversed um all often undetectable but still nevertheless always in one direction changing me into a misanthrope again it's fair to say that he regards this as very important right 12 years of his life essentially is balance thrown out of whack because of a social experiment that he didn't read the terms and conditions for I know a lot of people, Matt, some people might say that. Right. I mean, Sam Harris has a PhD. He's, you know, he's got an IQ of 140, 150. This, this is nonsense that uh, Sam Harris didn't know what he was doing. Sam Harris wants to externalize his problem. His problem is that he finds certain types of criticism make him very, very unhappy. And he wants to, he was getting the most painful of these criticisms on Twitter and so he thinks his problem is Twitter, right? But Twitter is just a manifestation of something that's going on inside of him. And that is, he finds it very difficult to deal with criticism, finds it very difficult not to have, you know, control. And the idea that anyone can just push back and criticize him, he, he, he finds that unbearable, right? But the inability to, to deal with, with criticism and the inability to deal with, with Twitter is just a reflection of him being ill at ease with himself. Like I've met Sam Harris. He, he's, a, he's a very tense person, right? He's not someone who radiates, you know, ease and comfort with himself. And he wants to blame this lack of comfort, right? He wants to blame, you know, these mental health problems on an external source. He wants to blame them on Twitter. But the source of Sam Harris's problems are Sam Harris. And he... You know, he's got his own meditation app, and maybe this has helped him somewhat. But these are just all external practices that that are not that haven't resulted in the significant emotional change, emotional maturity that would that would you know rework his his inner soul so that uh, dealing with criticism becomes less painful for him. Uh, you and I have the same pathology, right, of, of Twitter addictions, and I might lend credence to that, but I can't help at times when people are talking about social media in this way, thinking, you know, at times I just stopped using Twitter for a couple of weeks or whatever, when it annoyed me too much. The issue is when you're at that scale, you can end up trending or or something like that. But I guess the issue for me is just exercise self-will and don't use it if you don't like it. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people are wringing their hands about what social media has wrought on society. I'm not saying it doesn't have all these deranging impacts, but I just feel like stop doing that. It's, I guess it's the same as me with like coffee. Just don't drink it. <laughs>
Okay, I'll play that uh, Charles Johnson clip from uh, Angel Dust. It's not. When it becomes my business is when the U.S. steps out of line and continues to pick a side. And when we are sending my money and our people in places that they don't belong. When I say I'm for America first, I'm for America first. Anyone that doesn't like what I say, how I say it, or I don't pick a side they don't like or they like is too fucking bad. That goes for Charles. That goes for stealth. Oh, no, that no, goes no. for it any goes motherfucking for body. Listen, I listen, don't you've care. You've been in these spaces, and I don't want to be rude to you about this. Just, just to be clear about this, you and boxing and a few of the others that are in these spaces are known to push the BB line. And I'm just letting no, you know. No, I don't push any BB line. You have no proof of I'm that. I'm just letting you know but you that keep you're spouting, already on a list. You keep you spouting, continue, Ginger. You can continue and I'll talking over me I'll if wait. you want. But you're on a list, and so the question for you is, do you want to continue with this behavior as we wrap up? Are you threatening me? Because I'm not let threatening me hit record, I'm telling you, I'm telling you that you're on a list. Let, let me get this on record. Oh, so, please you do. Know, I mean, just be clear about it. And by the way, you've been recorded for the last six weeks on these spaces, just, just so you're aware. Okay, great. Like all of the great. conversations that, that you had in all of these spaces, you've been recorded by, by an allied, US, allied to U.S. intelligence service. So just to be very clear wow. about this. All right, so this is a woman talking with uh, Charles Johnson. And I'm putting a link to this show in the in the chat and on my video descriptions. Just so you know that I know what you are, you're in trouble. And the question is, do you want to continue playing this game or not? It's up to you. Okay, Charles, you threatened, I'm not threatening me you. once. And by the way, by the way twice. you can come Let's over anytime. Third. I'm happy to meet you in the streets. I'm happy to have you to photograph you and you're document who you are. Again. And I'm happy to have you get registered under Farah as the Israeli influence agent that we know you are. <laughs> no problem at all. Happy to do it. Charles, you are so whacked. Sure, I had now I'm whacked. For you before very you came simple, to me. very simple. You are a disinformation agent in these spaces. It's what you are. Now you may do it. You and may do it because you, you may do it because you get money from that, them. You may do it. Charles, where do where where do we think Miss G is providing? Oh, I mean, there's so many examples of her always siding with the Israeli cause or with the Likud cause. I don't I mean I don't want to be rude about it. I haven't listened to all you know whatever. But you know what's happening is what's happening is there are people in these spaces like me and others who are tagging people and then forwarding it on to the British or forwarding it on to people in the US government. And we're tagging you guys, just letting you know, like that's what's going on. And what will happen is you'll be identified if you're not already identified. And then you'll be added to a financial blacklist for basically pushing disinformation and talking points. Kind of like what happened to Tommy Robinson. What's the disinformation? By the way, what happened to Tommy Robinson is an example of this, but there are other examples, right? Laura Loomer got uh, debanked, right? There there are many examples of people in these spaces that- that... Charles, I ain't got shit. Come after me, I ain't got shit. Uh Well, we'll see about that. I don't. Right. So I'm just letting you know, like, and I'm letting everybody who's in these spaces. I mean, Charles, should we really be taking it? This oh, we are taking it this seriously, just to be clear about it, because we're knowing that there are IDF task forces in these spaces that are pushing certain Likud lines. And what's happening is, uh, you seriously give me too much credit. I'm just Charles, telling you, I tell you, this is what's happening I, I, right now. Like, I, 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 you may honestly, not like this, but this is what's happening. I don't really you're being give a tagged, fuck. How about and that? you're being documented. And there are many people who are in okay. these spaces who are being tagged and documented. So you're not alone, Ms. G. Like, don't take it personally, right? But what's happening is we're identifying. Oh, I don't. And we're recording it and we're putting it into our databases and we're doing the speech analytics. There's, there's a really wonderful software tool that. that what they're doing is they're all, there's a software tool that, that basically identifies people from their voices, which is why it's kind of dumb to be anonymous in these spaces, just FYI. But. Uh, I don't know, but I don't know if we should loop Miss G in with. I'm just telling you, she's on the list. I, I, I didn't set up the list. It is what it is. But you know what? You know what, Charles? Have at it. You got no proof. Like I said before, and I'll say it again, I am a woman who lives in New York City who has family that is in Israel, Beersheba. 
and I do not like what happened there. So personally, my take is if you come for someone, you got to expect that they're going to come back at you. And that's all there is to it. As for what is going on there geopolitically and the involvement, listen, I am no geopolitical expert. All I'm saying is I don't want my country involved. Your country is paying that's billions of dollars to the Israeli government. The U.S. government gives billions of dollars. I, and I am Israel. aware and I am not okay with that. Uh-huh. So you have the same position Bibi Netanyahu does on the U.S. sending remittances, which is that you don't want to see it anymore, right? That's what your position is, the same position. I'm sorry, what, what's that? I don't understand. You don't want the U.S. government. I mean, Mr. G wants to cut off funding. That's the same correct. position Netanyahu takes. And then, of course, it never happens. How interesting. Listen, I... Charles, yeah, he made that first in the again, 1990s. Charles, he made that Charles, again did it. You, why is it so, less, uh, so interesting that uh, one woman's opinion Apparently, she doesn't want the U.S. financially supporting Israel. Why does Charles Johnson find it interesting that one one woman's opinion isn't automatically translated into American policy? That doesn't strike me as terribly interesting. Threaten me three times. I have no idea what you're talking about. You're already on a list right now. So it's up to you if you want to stay on that list, and it's up to you if you want to continue pushing Israeli propaganda. Up to you. Your choice. Charles, Charles, let me tell you something. If this was Italy... I'd still have the same position and probably even stronger because that is where I'm from. Okay. I do not like terrorist activity. I lived through 9-11. I lived through 93. I was downtown. I don't like it. I don't think it's okay. And I do believe that if, like I said before, they have a right to defend themselves. Now, is it out of control? Eh. Ain't my, like I said, ain't my circus, ain't my monkeys. Just don't send any more money. And don't fucking send, look to send our people and our military there. That is it. And if you don't like it and you want to say, I'm on a list, Charles, I'm on. Okay, let me try a different video in case this is the one that uh, Art Bell is referring to. All right, this is uh, Geopolitics After Dark here. Okay, so I've got Blue Bunny Cherry Chocolate Chunk for the space. Is that the appropriate ice cream? Man, ice cream. Wow, wow. You know, ice cream is one of those types of foods, Tap, that if uh, you indulge too often, very shortly after you notice the uh, fat deposits, handle it. Um, oh, no, it's it's not a it's not something I can do often. In fact, I had to step back for a couple months there. But there are times, especially at the end of the year, where it's like, oh, yes, it, it's time for additional calories. Oh, no, now is the time. Handle it. Um, oh, no, it's it's not a it's not something I can do often. In fact, I had to. Come on, uh, Bill, is this the video you want me to play? That I think any sort of perceived disruption could be quite bad for PR. Um, and also, what does it say about these other Arab states? Can they not provide their own security? Uh, increasingly, no. That's clearly the case. Um, and why would you if you can get someone else to do it for you? Why dedicate your yeah. state resources towards that if you can continue to invest in businesses and infrastructure, etc.? Same as, why would we use our own oil when we can bleed the rest of the world dry and still have our reserves? Right. And I think SPR is something that we need to be very careful about. And in the future, we should maintain a, a certain certain number and we shouldn't disclose it. And we should say, you can't use this for domestic political purposes. This is military reserve. This is for emergencies. Joe Biden, hands off. Keep your grubby mitts off of this stuff, you know? Yeah, SPR, 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 and a Slocum should arrive. Yeah, Slocum's big on this. Slocum thinks that SPR should become a matter of national security and not a campaign platform. But um, yeah, uh, trash, I, listen, I don't know what the fuck happened with those with those Groypers last night. I mean, these people are generally a waste of time. Oh, yeah. No, I don't care. About, I don't care about that. But like you guys are talking. No, no, like I, I, listen, they, they called me out. They created the space in my name. I went in there. They muted me the entire time. I was not allowed to talk. It, it's clear that they're very lowbrow, stupid people. But what I'll say is uh, when you're talking about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, uh, which I just came in on on SPR, um, 
couple things, couple things, couple things. So number one, uh, we know that like when Biden took over in office, he signed, I don't know, 76, 77, I don't know, executive orders, whatever it was. One of them was specifically was it was shutting down uh, American oil and gas production in the country. And that was supposed to be like a nod, like the Green Party, the uh, the 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 progressive wing of the Democrats that got him elected, whatever, whatever you elected, selected, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> don't really care. I'm not here to litigate that. But what I will say is this. Um, and Vivek Ramaswamy has actually expertly pointed this out in the past. And I've, I've shown the clip. I've talked about it because he was right. I've been right. I've been right for a very long time in that he shut down basically the Exxon and the mobile and and basically any American oil and gas uh, producer in this country. They, they, he shut them down. and said you can't participate on federal uh, federal lands. You OK, let me go back to uh, previous. It's rude not video. to. Well, it doesn't. I'm going to respectfully ask that you stop with the narrative because it's starting to irritate me now. Charles, let me let me ask you okay, this. Hold on. Can you guys hear me? I can hear you. Okay. Speaking of hacking, I told a joke and no one laughed. So I was like, what is going on here? Uh, but first off, in terms of hacking, I I was actually um, just posting something to Twitter. And I think I like clicked edit the post or something. And now I feel like my Twitter account is gone or something. It's like Twitter? I have to... It's, it's busted really. as fuck like right now. Yeah, okay. there's a worldwide... So th like this is due issues. to the new authentication service or something? Oh, this yeah. is just abject incompetence, in my opinion. I mean, th this is this is not 2004 or something. I mean, th this is not that difficult to do as a major tech company. I mean, give me a break. Well, I mean, that's assuming that it was all built properly in the first place. And I think if there's one thing that we can notice after the last year, it's that Musk has made more changes to Twitter in the last year than Twitter made in the last five to seven before that. And perhaps this is why. Okay, well, okay, I mean, Caroline, I mean, you are fair enough, but again, look, uh, look, uh, the simple thing about the double glitch, for example, this shit is going on for, for almost a year now, and it's still not being fixed. And come on, I mean, I, I, honestly, now I'm not even a free, a free ride, I'm paid, no, I'm a paid, I'm paying customers, so I have certain demands here. And this app, honestly, I, I more about new, you know, more about Amarin than I do. You know, there's a video of Ann Coulter at an Amarin conference? How? Asking a question. Kind of or something, or what? Well, let's back this up. Here, no, I'm scared of one person. That's God Almighty. Well, I'm a pope. No, you're not afraid of the pope. He can excommunicate you. So this this morning, well, I don't this like time, that motherfucker either. I got a DM from someone that accused me of being Nazi trash and wanting wanting me to die because of my views let's on a pope. And uh, and Welcome you know, I team. No, I despise Nazis. No, I but, know, but I get called that all the time too. When you're out the other, so so what if Charles thinks that you're a Israeli asset? Listen, like you know, I really don't care what he thinks. I don't like the accusation. Um, you know, yeah, it, no, but he was talking. It's unhealthy. Maybe we should become an actual gang now that I brought it up. Where like in order to be a host, you have to have killed someone, Richard. <laughs> Richard. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, I and like you have to allowed... you have to have like a teardrop tattoo on your face, yeah. and instead yeah, of maybe five tears, and then if, if anyone like tries to like places. be a speaker, it's like get the fuck out of here. No, but no, Richard, you... my point was is there are some people that I have publicly spoken out on behalf of here and, and I, I, attested I it. to we their character. But if somebody was making legitimate, if they were like, oh, Miss G is a white supremacist because she talks to Richard Spencer or something that actually could legitimately hold teeth, I would stop. But Charles has, I would stop them. But Charles has accused everyone in these spaces except for like three people of being lacoot. You know, like he said that Richard is too Jewish in his thinking. Like, how seriously are we supposed to take this? You know what That's, I mean? That and might be as much. It's insightful. not that. It's definitely right, seriously. Actually. Apparently, yeah, it's like that guy at the Amren <laughs> conference. Remember the French guy? He's like, he is like a Jew in the mind. <laughs> remember that? <laughs> oh, did Guillaume Fay say that? Might have been him. I don't remember. Oh, someone else did. You know more about you know more about Amren than I do.
You know, there's a video of Ann Coulter at an Amarin conference. How? Asking a question. Nineties or something, or what? Yeah, yeah, late nineties. Yeah, it's not that surprising actually. But anyway, I just you ever seen that, that David? But you know more about. There was a French guy who was like, "You are the Jew in the mind." He said it in French first. He's like, eh, "How do I say he's, uh, he's like a Jew in the mind?" <laughs> Whatever. That's kind of like me, though. I I think it's a compliment. Like, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, Sino Lacoud chill confirmed. You ever seen that David Duke clip where he Richard talks clearly about, uh, at the Amber, Richard's the facade. <laughs> and he brings up the uh, like the gates of Constantinople and who opened them or something like that. You ever seen that? Oh, the legend. <laughs> who opened the gates of? Yeah, I'm sure you could take a wild guess who he thinks is responsible. <laughs> Constantine the twelfth. The gates of Toledo. Right. There's some good uh, citations on that claim. There's actually a person. I think there was an important person named Orban actually. It's interesting. I remember. I'll have to go look and research this. Oh yeah, yeah. Orban was the cannon maker for um, Mehmet. Oh well, yeah, they were uh, Hungarian, right? Yeah, they were Hungarians that were. Yeah, exactly. Like Victor Orban is. Yeah, Victor Orban. Deep, deep blood great, 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 great. <laughs> yeah, the Turks controlled all those peoples in the South uh, European areas. Yeah, Southeastern Europe. So, is a Turkish conspiracy a rival to the Sinolkut conspiracy? Is it like are, are we witnessing an information gang war happening? It's the Chinese Sinaloa. What's it called? The Chinaloa, as, as Chuck was saying. Do, do you know what I would say here? I mean, like, I, I don't, I don't want to like receive the wrath of a certain person, but there, it, there is a point where it becomes like actually schizophrenic, and that is actually a real serious issue. Now, I didn't hear all of this, but just accusing. I mean, no, I don't want to offend you here, Miss G, but like the idea that you're a secret agent. I mean, that's just a little too romantic. I mean, I, I, I don't know if you find that insulting or something. It's just like, you know, it, it would. It's just bizarre claim. Yes, it, 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 it was bizarre. As... It was bizarre. And I don't listen in a joking manner. I don't mind. He took it a bit too far. He started threatening me. Where I've recorded. Oh, it. wow. But yeah, the threats don't hold any water. Because the... He invited you to go to his house. And yeah. To go to his house. He said I was everyone with list. an XX chromosome has like at <laughs> and... one point been invited to his house. <laughs> and that. Um... So the, the chat indicates that uh, Charles Johnson and uh, Richard Spencer have fallen out. My accounts. You know, accounts are being locked and inability to Zelle or PayPal or whatever. And Big Dominic, I said, you're putting me in the same category as that dude? Like, yeah, really? Also, like, the, the benign deep state is, like, going after the Israelis or something. I mean, this just is just bizarre. I mean, but I don't know. There's no reason to, like, get I mean, worked up about such things. Like, if you don't care what people think, then why do you care that he said it? And I, no, just... I, don't care. I don't care that. What I said was the threats, Hannah. The but they were, the threats hold no water because none of it holds any water is my thing. Like it was, you know, he's like, there's a list and people's accounts are it's like, okay, okay, Charles. Like it's, again, okay, if but... I thought that someone was legitimately, you know, denouncing your character, from Adam. then I would have said something, but I really was busy with the baby and brushing my hair and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, it's just Charles accusing everyone of being Lacoud, you know? <laughs> yeah, but he kept I, think, at me. I think it wasn't everybody. Yeah. It was me. Miss G, I think. He did accuse multiple people though. And that's what he does. Like, and, and you're like the thousandth person I've heard him accuse of this. Yeah, think of it as like a rite of passage, you know? Yeah. Yeah, he insulted me exactly. by saying that I wasn't on any list and he's unaware. So, yeah, he, he basically told Caroline <laughs> he was irrelevant. Yeah, he told me I was irrelevant. So. That was so rude. Yeah, well, we Charles see is... food or something. Like, come on. <laughs> Charles is intelligent. He's, I think it's funny. He's also like a crank and he, he's a bigot like against that particular group. He's crazy. Charles so, doesn't like that's a mix. Someone at Ampest told me that guy's schizophrenic. And that, can we uh, all agree uh, that? Can we all agree that if. In this context, if someone is being like attacked or whatever, and people don't jump in to defend, it is probably because the people listening don't take what's being said seriously. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Yeah, Mystery is completely overreacting. Like, nobody cares about this. It's irrelevant. No one believes it other than crazy people. I wouldn't even call it an overreaction. Love you guys, more... the other people who don't know me history, that, you know... Oh, Misty, like, we're you know... not a gang. I mean, I, it's like, you... I'm sorry. Like, no, I'm not you're going to have to defend you, yourself. Richard. Okay, but I Hannah do... But and, and Zag, personally, and even Nuance, I have probably come out of this space and have, in the past, <laughs> spoken on their character on behalf of them because what was being said about them was not true. I do want to say, Ms. G, there, I was not here for the beginning of that conversation, so I didn't actually understand the context of what was being spoken. But what I can say is there are conversations that I have had with people that we know. Maybe we love them. Maybe we don't. Depends on who we're talking. Okay, it's becoming repetitive. You guys need to understand. People yelling and screaming and breaking shit, that's not indicative of great bodily harm. They might yes, it is. You know, hold up. Hold up, Alpha. Let me talk first. You're in a riot situation and you have massive disparity of force. What are you talking about? So alpha, I'm not in a crowd of thousands violently breaking into the area. Why do you, why do you think why do you think protests don't always have people? This happens all the time in protests. What? Like I said, alpha it might scare you guys, but for the men and women that are trained for this, alpha, can, stop this, stop you this like that. dick measuring bullshit. Hey, alpha, 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 I'm not, I'm not. Richard, I'm just calling you guys pussy in a very polite way. I'm sorry. Alpha, alpha, I'm not a, I'm not a. Hold on, Richard. I'm not, I'm not a law enforcement officer, but I'm, I am, a, I did work in public service. I'm a paramedic, and like if if I was there, I would be in fear of my life. Like. I would have declared C not safe and, and staged, you know, like a couple miles away or whatever. Like it, it was not a safe area at the time. Like you would people should be. And, and, and when and when and when the firefighters and the medic stage, who goes over there renders Alpha. the scene safe and they do that without killing people. And yeah, then we Alpha. say the scene's code four and then so, you roll in. So the object that was used to smash the window was a flagpole. Do you believe that if those people got through the window with that flagpole, that they could have used that to inflict great bodily injury or death upon them? I think talking about January sixth there. An officer. If Ashley would have been holding that flagpole in her hand and would have been pointed at the direction of him when he fired it, I would say 100% is justified. So he should have waited for her to come in and shot the guy with a flagpole? I said, the guy, no, I'm saying if she would have had the flagpole in her hand and she would have... Yeah, it's Richie's signal in there. It's not Richie's signal, man. Fuck you, Chetico. That's what Richie's saying you're doing. I agree. She keeps saying I'm Jewish. She's like, oh, we know he's. Would you like me to bring her up here sometime so you can talk to her? Zach, we all know that you're looking. Come on. Exactly. So he's calling her dumb, but she's not dumb. She's very successful. She's very smart. She's just a very good. She's very good at shit talking too, and that's kind of who is this? Like a lot of people can't handle her. Her name's Donica. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh man, honestly, if you yeah, he's just listen, simping she's for the like Armenian Nazi. No, no, I'm not simping for her. You are simping, though. You are fucking simping, Sedekin. She's dumped as shit. And you know, she actually was doxxed. Everything what she said is wrong. Yeah, Everything. I, I know, right? I, yeah, I've you know, why, why are you defending her, man? I, like, you are smarter than this. You know, I have her in a group chat. You know what my problem is, Chenikel? This, Chenikel, like, I don't know who she is. You know, Chenikel, the thing is, you must imagine, like, if, if I would be like her, I would call her, you know what, who the fuck are you? All Albanians are fucking drug traffickers and human smugglers. Because a lot of them actually are. But I would never do that. But if she tells me, I'm a cuck. And she, this is the stupidity well, of people. the way that you interact with her, and I've explained this to you, that you could, like, handle yourself differently and you could not chimp out whenever she's, like, criticizing you. Are you retarded, Jenica? Fuck you, man. If I will, look, man, if I'm caught by a fucking mountain peasant, a self-hating German, she can fuck off. Then I will chip out. Because she has no right to tell me what I am. She's nothing. She's literally nothing. And maybe that comes across a little bit, yeah, um, right, uh, hey, I don't hey, know. Uh, but she's nothing. Let's, anyway. Let's move past this issue. Yeah, let's move. Wait, wait, wait. If she's nothing, then why are you getting so upset? All right, obviously she's not nothing. Secret papist. Well, you're, 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 you're using Christians the church fathers as some great authority. This is just like the essence of Christians. And we get it, Richard. Thank you. You're so smart. Oh, my God. You read one part. Look at Stop being a little Christian. fucking bitch, man. Yeah, Luke, no, 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 Luke. You know the, you know the Cambridge, you know the Cambridge separation of Yahweh from Elohim in the Old Testament. You're really high idea. Okay, Luca, Luca, one quick point. Very simple. Hey, Luca, I think actually like you I need to be bullied a little bit, my boy. 
Richard, Richard, don't get too mad at him. I want to just ask him some question. Luca, I'm sure you, you've read enough that you know I that Aquinas... Him. I moved okay, him because, because once he gets to this stage, like for about 20, 30 minutes, he'll discuss the points, and then he'll send him with the, you're retarded, you don't know what you're talking about, you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and then it just, it, I don't know, Luca. I mean, if you can compose yourself, you can come back up. But if you Look, my only point was there's a difference between theological uh, teaching. What is, this, what is a sin? Clearly, premarital sex is a sin in Christianity, as in Islam, and what society is expected and, and condemn people for over the generations. And do now, even in trans society like Armenia or Jordan, and there's much more condemnation of men, uh, women having premarital sex. And in like, this kind of modern Christian, pardon me, this kind of 21st century America, it's equal. It's kind of this, you can say it's a more uh, faithful. Okay, that, that's enough of uh, the trash talking. Let's get a little bit more from Decoding the Gurus. Yeah, yeah. I have thoughts. Do you have any more clips though, Chris, to illustrate this? I do. So uh, here is, well, one of the last on this theme about, you know, is social media overall harmful for society? Do you think about how far it's satisfied? Is it a net negative, net positive overall, do you think? Well, I think it's a net negative. I think it's a massive opportunity cost for almost everybody. Uh, I, mean, I just think where, you know, you look at what you're doing and not doing based on your engagement with these platforms. I mean, you're not tending to read good long books anymore. At minimum, even if it's your job to read those books, it's become harder to do that. And I wasn't certainly noticing that for myself. Um, it's. Uh, I haven't found it harder to read books from being on social media. We're just. It has served to fragment our attention and our lives in ways that I just can't be good. Even if, again, even if your diet of information is almost entirely positive, there's this fragmentation effect. You know, it's like you just, I mean, I notice people, I certainly, I notice young people now who are, who appear almost neurologically incapable of watching a great movie from beginning to end. He's sort of going a bit broader there in terms of not just about Twitter, but about internet media more generally. Kids today. Yeah, kids today. And I've got kids of various ages and there is truth in everything that Sam is alluding to. And, you know, I know people a bit like Sam who have noticed that being on Twitter or other social media has really affected the quality of life. And it's invariably the case. I don't know about Sam, but it's invariably the case of the other people that they are unable to exercise self-control in terms of not reacting to things and, you know, not sort of, I guess, censoring themselves in a way and say, hey, maybe I don't need to broadcast this controversial political opinion about whatever trans issues israel and hamas you know maybe i don't need to voice that because i don't want to deal with all of the blowback it will attract you know if I look at my twitter i guess i'm one of those people that sam was thinking of who use it in a relatively innocuous way the last one was i love indian food with a photo of my cooking i was promoting a, a survey for getting a baseline for one of my students who are testing people's cognitive abilities against gpt4 another one was about the theme song to monkey magic, monkey magic, monkey magic. And none of that caused me any hassles. I think I made three or four tweets over 48 hours. So you can use Twitter in a way, I think, that doesn't really bother you. Is that because you're just not popular enough that nobody cares? Well, that's definitely <laughs> part of it. I do have, Chris, I have 10,000 followers now. I think, hang on, let me check. I do, I've got 10,000 followers. How about that? I'm not knocking your, your following. That's not Sam Harris territory. Sam Harris has a million. Or I know. I have many, right? Exactly. That's right. So, you know, that's a fair point. Your experience will differ depending on that. I also have notifications turned off for people that I don't follow. So it's fun. I mean, I definitely appreciate and sympathize with Sam's experience, but I'm just pointing out that you can use social media in a way that doesn't affect your life in a negative way. I mean, I have opinions about controversial things. I sometimes choose discretion in terms of voicing them on social media. I mean, I think there's wisdom there, but I also think that Sam would argue that he won't choose silence because he thinks it's important that he issues his perspective, right? So even if it's going to bring him pain, he would be able to avoid it by not talking about the issue, but he thinks they should. And he often communicates this on the, the podcast, right? And uh, I'll play a clip that refers to this in a minute. But the other point that I would make here is like my theory of social media, my, my revolutionary theory of social media <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. is the big boy pants theory, right? Which is if you use it as an adult, right? I'm not talking about teenagers. 
issues or whatever. If, like, there are issues about, you know, deranging attention spans or whatever, or following Twitch streamers or whatever the case might be. But if you're using it as an adult, I feel just like drinking, smoking substances or whatever, right. it's up to you to use the thing responsibly. And if you use it to exercise your demons, right, or to engage in arguments, to fight endlessly with lab leak people in threads that are hugely long, if you want to mm -hmm. ding Lex Friedman for his pro-centrist stance or whatever the case might be, you just have to know what you're doing and be okay with it, right? And I feel that in most respects, I can take that stance that like what annoys me is when people present themselves as doing something and then they're not doing that. They're saying they're centrist people and they're not, right? Or they're kind of not acknowledging their role in making their online experience the way it is. Because you, you can make your social media experience a whole different variety. And it, it is true to say though that the platforms make a difference. Like Elon Musk's changes to Twitter have made a difference to my experience. And yes. you can cultivate your feeds in different ways that make a difference. So it is true. Like, I, I don't think there's nothing to what Sam no. is saying. I'm just saying personal responsibility, right? Yeah, yeah. I think he's speaking to real things. Like, you know, you've seen the destructive or unhealthy dynamics that social media can create and the effects on younger people with their twitching and their Instagram. Okay, let's get a little bit more here people saying we're not critical enough, right? So it's a little bit like that, you know? It depends what you're commenting on, but it, there is political shelter in being a down-the-line right-winger or left-winger. That is true. There is a degree of comfort there, but there's also a degree of comfort in enlightened centrism and that kind of thing. So, you know, yeah. I just have to point it out. And did you notice the spit roast analogy right there? I did. Interjected by young Christopher. A little bit gauche and Chris. Williamson, that is I'm referring to if you're listening to this. A little bit gauche, mate. But, you know, it's good to keep things grounded, I suppose. What is a spectral smart? Isn't that just like a pig? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's just like a Hawaiian barbecue on the beach, Chris. That's what, it's, that's what it is. Getting stuff from both sides, right? That's the pig, the pig in the analogy. That's what. That's happened. right. A, a juicy, succulent pig. Okay, yes. So I mentioned that because this may occur again from time to time. But there is a section where they're talking about people looking for social media guidance or guidance on social media from guru-type figures, right? So I've got a couple of clips of Chris Williams and introducing this and then Sam's response to a particular person that's mentioned. I've got Jordan uh, coming on the show again mm -hmm. at some point later this year. And it's something that I think I'll speak to him about that he's onto big things with this arc, which is kind of his competitor, I think, to the WEF that he's doing later this yeah, year. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't followed that yet. No. Um, but I do think that Jordan's relative abandonment of the conversation directly to young men uh, mm -hmm. to move on to other things, whether it be climate change or the trans issue or pick your poison about whatever he's got interested in recently, uh, I think that that has left a vacuum and you can't mm -hmm. expect young, you can't expect anybody to go through life without insights coming from somewhere. So that point about, you know, that you need insights coming from somewhere, right? And Chris is a fan of Jordan Peterson, right? And they're having him back on. And this might be a little bit of my privilege, but I didn't spend my life looking for follower figures. You know, I find them, I find people that I admire in literature, in the world. In your co-host, for instance. Yeah, man, there's my own follower. It's all right. <laughs> all right. We have our differences, but you know, it's okay now. Because he's kind of saying Jordan, by going into becoming a political partisan, has a little bit abandoned the online follower figure he was playing. Yeah. You know, this could be privilege, but this could be my privilege about my personality or, or not having, you know, terribly abusive family life or something like that. But Jordan Peterson, you know, I get why people look up to him as a follower figure, but can you not go through life without having someone like him mm. telling you to tie your shoelaces and stand up straight, you know? Yeah. Well, I think broadly speaking, this is a topic upon which the Manosphere and Jordan Peterson and the IDW construed very broadly finds agreement on, which is that people are crying out for meaning. People are looking for somebody to sense make and to provide some structure to their lives. And while Sam Harris has a lot of divergences with a lot of those people, I think he'd agree too with that. And yeah, I'm sort of with you, which is that I don't think that's something the internet should provide or internet personalities should provide to anyone. Maybe we're asking too much of the media. Sphere. It's probably because we're like middle aged, right? But you know, I, I liked Eric Cantona when I was a kid. Eric Cantona was like a Manchester United footballer, like this cool French guy, right? And he 
fly kicked the fan and got banned for a year or suspended for a year and stuff. But, you know, I thought it was cool. I admired him and that kind of thing. But I wasn't looking for Eric Cantona's guide to life. In fact, when he spoke, he just said mental things at interviews and whatnot. So, you know, like a cool figure or celebrities or whatever, I didn't regard them as repositories of a life philosophy. Like I became interested in Buddhism and stuff like that. And I met charismatic people in my time. But I, I guess we are living a little bit in a golden age of online gurus where you're a dissatisfied young person you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable why aren't you getting partners why aren't you popular or whatever and you're not happy with your low-paying job and then there's this whole ecosystem of people that will give you philosophies and life advice and you know how to deal with things and i guess i can see the people that but it's just i'm so strong-spirited <laughs> I, I didn't have that issue but i guess it's hard to say if we grew up now it's easy to look back and say well i wouldn't have bought into any of that crap right and i don't think i did buy into much of that crap when i was a teenager but i'm not a teenager now yeah well i'll just say this i mean i think it's totally natural for young people young adults to find figures that they would like to emulate if you're lucky that person could be your own mother or father or both it could be another friend you know somebody in your thing or it could be someone who's written books and things like that or someone you've even watched youtube videos of those are natural tendencies but i'm very suspicious of anybody who presents themselves as a father figure presents themselves a substitute following yeah or as being somebody i am somebody to emulate and you know they talk about that terrible person what's his name the guy with the big garden andrew, andrew tate like, he's someone who broadcasts himself in a weird way as being not a father figure but somebody to emulate somebody that you want to be yeah top d yeah and that's a classic example of how people who do that are probably the last people you should be emulating like it, i'm just saying it's a natural thing that happens organically but it should happen organically and just be very suspicious on somebody on broadcast media internet or otherwise that is saying hey i'm your father figure you know that's not, yeah, not good the thing for me is matt right like when i went through my rebellious teenage streak which i i think most people do right and had various conflicts with my parents or whatever and look outside for other things interested in buddhist philosophy or, or all this kind of stuff you know i saw various figures that i i regarded as admirable i saw thai boxers when i was doing thai boxing that i thought well that guy's really tough look at that but i i like them for the thing that they did yeah i liked Anthony DeMello for like the philosophy that he had. I like picking that hand for the kind of presentation of Buddhism he had. Okay, a lot of questions in the chat about what was it like growing up uh, celebrating Christmas as a Seventh-day Adventist. Well, we did not celebrate Christmas in my home. My father took kind of a Puritan approach. He, he regarded celebrations like Christmas and Easter as pagan. So there, there'd be some gift exchanging, but uh, not always on Christmas Day. We only once had a Christmas tree, and that's when my sister, my ad sister as an adult, uh, came back to visit us, and she insisted on going out and getting a Christmas tree. So did I feel envious of other families? Uh, probably, but I could not have articulated it. I mean, I think when you're a kid, if you have any sort of reason to feel proud of, of your home and of your father and mother, you're going to take it for granted that they are doing the right thing. So consciously, I took it for granted that until I was about 13 or 14, I took it for granted that everything we did in my home was right, that by not celebrating Christmas, we were better Christians, we were more true to the real message of Jesus, that we were more aligned with God's will, and that we had a more you know, intellectual and righteous understanding of what was going on. But I also felt a great deal of envy at the warm, happy homes that I saw around me. So I remember throughout my childhood yearning to be adopted by some other family. But then I'd always come back to I was proud of my father. I was proud of his accomplishments. I was proud of his fame. I was proud of his ability to mesmerize people with his teachings. I regarded him as a righteous man and a true scholar. So I would feel those inclinations. Oh, it'd be, be great to be adopted into a normal family that celebrates things like Christmas and Easter and enjoys life and enjoys each other. 
then I'd come back to, well, yeah, but my father's a great man. So, you know, there are some downsides to the austerity of our home. But overall, this is, this is the best of all possible worlds for me. And then, and then I would, then when I started having relationships with, with, with women, they would, they would start to say, you know, I'm so sorry that you, you know, you did not get to enjoy, you know, normal happiness in your life. And this is, this has warped you. And, and this is why you are the way you are. And so, yeah, Christmas never meant anything really when I was growing up. And now as a convert to Judaism, I think it is a great idea to take the opportunity to connect with other people and to celebrate things and to follow traditional rituals. And I guess I so strongly believe in this because not only did I largely not have that growing up, but in, in large part, I struggled to create that in, in my own life as I've because I've never gotten married. The happiest parts of my life have been when I felt adopted into another family. Right? The happiest parts of my childhood were when I was away from my parents. And even as an adult, as a convert to Orthodox Judaism, there have been you know, long stretches of time where I felt a, a, essentially adopted into an Orthodox family where I'd go there frequently for Shabbat dinners, for holiday dinners, and I, I felt like part of the part of the family, and that seemed to fill me up. Uh, converting to Judaism seemed to start to fill me up. I, I felt so empty inside. Like, why do people convert to another religion? It's usually going to be because they feel empty inside. They're not happy with their life, and they kind of want to get rid of a life that they don't like and create a new life. And they think that by embracing this new religion, they'll be able to create this new life and start getting filled up. And so Judaism offers just so many opportunities for, for human connection. And usually the, the number one decider of whether or not you can make it through the, the Jewish conversion process is can you successfully assimilate into a family and find opportunities to contribute and to be you know, a valued member of a team. Right? Not everyone's cut out to playing nicely with other people. Not everyone's cut out to be a member of a team. Not everyone's apparently cut out to living in community. I, I can't picture life without community, but you have to give up a lot to live in community, right? You can't live stream whenever you want, like Bernard's with his family, so he can't tune into this live stream right now. You have to subordinate a, a great deal of your own desires to the desires of the community and the desires of the family. So for me, I like the, the mixture that Orthodox Judaism offers for, between individuality and community. There's a lot of opportunity for individuality, and there's a lot of opportunity for community. So I could have more intense connection with my community, but I love my freedom. I could have more freedom, but I love my community. So I kind of live my life balancing out my very intense needs for community and for connection with other people and feeling you know, a vital part of their lives with my own strong, passionate desire for autonomy and freedom. You could just go to an In-N-Out burger to get fulfillment. You don't have to join humanity. Uh, most people will not feel <laughs> fulfilled just going to an In-N-Out bur 
<laughs> burger, right? You can watch uh, sports if you're a sports fan and it'll take you away from your misery, right, for, for a time. So the most intense sports fans tend to be the most miserable people. High-functioning people, right, who have families, who have love, who have career, right, they tend to be the least intense sports fans. They tend to be the least devastated by their team losing. They're the least likely to, you know, paint their faces and do extreme things and brawl with opposing fans. So if your life's not working, you're going to want distraction. So some people will find distraction from eating because they, they feel their stomach, the blood rushes to their stomach, and so their anxiety diminishes for a time. Or you're a sports fan and your anxiety and misery diminish when you're paying attention to sports. But these are just temporary escapes from your misery, right? You can tune out through the use of alcohol, right? I notice a lot of young people in particular like to get blitz because they like to forget essentially the misery of their life. Uh, people like to use pornography or pursue extreme sports or all these escapes from reality, right? They're nice when they're a garnish on you know, an otherwise fulfilling, disciplined life, but you can't effectively escape from your misery through food, through pornography, through extreme sports, through just general sports fandom or an extreme devotion to politics or to social causes, or to religion, all right? None of these things are going to solve an inner emptiness if your life simply doesn't work, all right? There's no shortcut to a life that works, right? It, it works if you work it, all right? If you follow a program for a disciplined, fulfilling, uplifting life, all right, that program's only going to work if you work it. As soon as you stop working it, all right, it's not going to work. If you've got diabetes, all right, type 1 diabetes, I assume you need to take insulin. If you don't take your insulin, you're going to have diabetic problems, all right? If you're an addict or if you're someone who naturally inclines towards a slovenly and selfish life, all right, if you don't take a program of recovery and don't practice it, then you're not going to get the benefits. When did I first hear Handel's Messiah? I'm sure I heard it as a kid. I mean, I like it, but it doesn't bring me to tears. So did I ever feel deprived? Yeah, constantly. Like everyone can mount a very convincing story of how they were deprived. Right? Everyone can feel the victim. Every group can feel the victim. Like there's no... There's no politics, there's no nationalism, there's no strong in-group identity without a strong feeling of victimhood. Was I ever envious of other people who are celebrating Christmas? Yes, frequently. Was I envious of the colorful excitement and the gifts? Yes, I, I was, but not so envious that I articulated it very much. Was I envious of the bonding at Christmas, the, the family relationships? Yes. As a child, yeah. For me, as a child, Christmas was wondering about what I would get, but then I didn't really need to wonder because my my dad would just say, you know, we'll get you anything, you know, I guess up to ten bucks or, or twenty bucks. So there wasn't any wonder. I'd just say, Oh, I want this particular book. The Isle of Plenty. Perhaps Seventh day Adventist uh, Christmas is a reaction or balance to American Christmas. Well, most Seventh day Adventists celebrate Christmas it's just that my father was a leading figure in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for many years, so he was much more strict than the average Seventh-day Adventist. So when my father would walk around in public, he would frequently carry holy books with him 
He'd just be like dipping in and out of the box as he walked. And then he learned to, to put on a beatific appearance on, it, on his face. So my father wouldn't do anything that would cause him a reduction in, in status in his uh, religious community. So he learned to you know, fashion his face in a way that, that showed how you know, spiritual and God-centered he was. He you know, learned to always conduct himself in ways that brought, were calculated to try to develop, you know, the most intense commitment by, you know, his in-group. My father had a substantial following. So he, you know, created an entire life. He felt happy, you know, largely based on his ability to move people through, you know, his presentation of the Christian gospel. So my father was most happy when people were listening to his his preaching. So here he is. Uh, six Only rarely do I speak on the investigative judgment. Two main reasons. One, I prefer to speak on the gospel, the good, glad, and merry tidings. It makes the heart to sing and the feet to dance. Now, the second reason is the investigative judgment has for many years been passé. One of the leading men in the church whom everybody knows and loves made an arrangement to meet me when he came out to Australia a few years ago. And he told me when he met me, we don't bother with it anymore. We don't preach it anymore over there. Well, he may have been exaggerating a bit. I'm sure there are a few that do preach it. But here in Australia, hardly anybody ever does preach it. But the reason I'm doing it... So my father was kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church for publicly trashing the investigative judgment teaching. Now, my father's completely wrong here. He's willfully delusional because he you know, has, has a certain agenda. So my father was a Seventh-day Adventist theologian and evangelist, and he was highly scrupulous about the way he presented himself, and part of his presentation was that he didn't observe pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter, and he would walk around carrying holy books. He'd delve in and out of them while he walked, and then he, he worked on you know, creating this beatific, you know, Christ-centered countenance. So he kept far away from any setting likely to be considered sinful, such as movie theaters. His whole life was dominated by his ministry. Like He made it clear that his Christian ministry was the number one thing in his life. So there was no public setting in which he didn't feel a profound responsibility to be the holy man. So he had no time off from being a representative of Jesus Christ. Now, as a church employee, as a Seventh-day Adventist minister, till 1980, he had to toe the line. But in 1980, at the Glacier View Conference, a Seventh-day Adventist conference held to work through my, my father's teachings about the investigative judgment and decide my father's fate, Right, the leader of the church, General Conference President Neil Wilson, stated that, of course, Seventh-day Adventist employees do not enjoy First Amendment protected freedom of speech. And Neil Wilson was a very canny political player, and my father was removed from the church ministry. So everybody has a boss. When you work for yourself, your clients are your boss. Right? When the church wasn't my dad's boss, the donors to my dad's evangelical Christian ministry, Good News Unlimited, became his new boss. So he often refrained from saying things in public that he knew to be true, such as that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 had different authors. And my 
father wouldn't say this publicly to a popular audience because he didn't want to discomfort his donors. So many of his most fervent supporters were obsessed about the end of the world. And so my father had to produce a, a product and a teaching and a personality that was attentive to these needs of his donors. So if you want to learn more about the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the, the best book is Seeking a Sanctuary, Seventh-day Adventism and the American Dream. So here are some notes from that book. But as important as Desmond Ford's rebellion was, it did not have the lasting effect that Adventist leaders feared and that Desmond Ford's followers hoped. The decisive way church leadership dealt with the crisis was a factor in this. The sequence of events that leads from questions on doctrine. So when Seventh-day Adventists started going to university, getting a secular education, they reformulated church theology in more rational terms, in ways that would be more fitting with uh, general evangelical Christian theology. So th there was a time when the church moved a little bit away from its more distinctive beliefs, tried to formulate things in a more rational function. So basically, 1968, approximately, we got questions on doctrine to the dismissal of my father, Desmond Ford, in 1980. So these events, according to the book, are a remarkable example of the way a web of theological ideas can unravel once a single thread has been cut. So Ford's agitation itself was widely believed to be a portent of Christ's soon coming by traditional members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There was even a novel written about, essentially, my father as the Antichrist. I think it was called Omega. So the Seventh-day Adventist Church's views on salvation and the heavenly sanctuary remained intact despite my father's rebellion. Like all previous Adventist dissidents, Brinsmead and Ford disappeared from view, once separated from the church, and the denomination went on much as before, which is the very opposite of what my father is trying to claim in this video. So the outrage expressed by church scholars, scholars following Glacier View had less to do with the conviction that Ford was treated unfairly than with the realization that they had been outmaneuvered by the administration, Seventh-day Adventist church administrators, that had used them to discredit the Australian theologian, my father. So the removal of Ford marked the end of an era. The flame of open inquiry that had burned brightly with the founding of the Association of Adventist Forums in 1968 was eventually quenched by the events of 1980, my father's removal from the church. Glacier View defined the limits of academic freedom in the modern church and left Adventist scholars defeated on the sidelines today is because my wife who is a keen historian wants there to be some record of some unknown facts about glacier view when we depart uh did my father get death threats i don't remember that but certainly there were tens of thousands of adventists who thought he was possessed by the devil this life nothing i say is against Adventism. I thank God I made a decision in my teens to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I have never regretted it. There are many wonderful things about Adventism. I believe very strongly in the binding obligation of the biggest commandment of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth. You may the Sabbath. So as my father was on the edge of death, he you know, released a testimony saying that he'd pursued truth his whole life and he sought to you know, in 
vindicate his life's work and to essentially you know, say, you know, I was right. I pursued truth my whole life and here I stand. I can do no other. And essentially restated his most important uh, theological beliefs. I not know it, but around the world, Sunday observance is almost dead, which means hundreds of millions of professing Christians are working seven days a week and hardly taking a prolonged glance heavenwards. I believe in the Sabbath as an outward sign of the rest of heart that the gospel brings. The first time the Sabbath is mentioned in the New Testament is in chapter 12 and immediately beforehand we have the well-known words of Christ. Come unto me. Okay, so back to the theme of uh, populism and democracy. Good column from Ross Douthat in the New York Times, February 2nd, 2022, noting that conservatism has always had a fraught relationship to mass democracy. The fear of mob rule, of demagogues rallying the masses to destroy a fragile social order. So remember, the greatest fear of people on the right is disorder and contagion. So these are common themes in different right-wing schools of thought showing up among traditional defenders of aristocracy as well as among libertarians. Then there are two specifically American forms of conservative anxiety about mass democracy. There's the fear of corrupt urban machine politics and the fear of African-American political power. So all these influences, you know, touch the modern Republican Party. So conservative skepticism about mass democracy was a normal part of American politics long before Donald Trump came along. So Republicans have long feared voter fraud. They have long feared non-citizen voting. And they fear that demographic change might deliver permanent Democratic Party power. So Republicans are more likely to portray America as a republic, not a democracy, not that there's a meaningful difference, and to try to defend our system's counter-majoritarian mechanisms. Now, this uh, philosophical tendency is increasingly self-interested because if it wasn't for the Electoral College, Republicans would have little chance of winning the presidency. Now, things are complicated because the modern Republican Party is also heir to a strong pro-democracy impulse. Right? When Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon were winning crushing victories, right, conservatives felt themselves limited by unelected powers such as bureaucrats and judges. So this experience left the right deeply invested in the idea that it represents the true American majority, the moral majority, the silent majority, while liberalism stands for elite power, anti-democratic forms of government, the bureaucracy and the juristocracy in the Ivy League. So with every new age of grassroots activism from the Tea Party to the local education board revolts of today, the right reliably casts itself as more D-Democrats standing boldly athwart liberal technocracy. So Donald Trump's stolen election narratives are a way to reconcile these two competing tendencies within conservatism. You've got the intellectual right skepticism of mass democracy and comfort with counter-majoritarian institutions. And this is combined with the populist right's more D-Democratic self-image. So in Trump's perspective, there's no tension here. The right-wing coalition is justified in governing from a minor, minoritarian position because it deserves to be 
a true electoral majority, and it would be if only liberal enemy weren't so good at cheating. Now, liberalism is the heir to its own qualms with democracy, right? The progressive vision is of disinterested experts claiming large swaths of policymaking for their own, and walling them off from the vagaries of public opinion and the whims of mere majority. So you often hear in elite discourse that uh, majoritarianism represents a threat to democracy, right? Majoritarianism means that the majority of the people you know, should not be allowed to rule if it is divorced from the guidance of experts. So who should lead, for example, pandemic decision-making? Well, from liberal left perspective, obviously it's the medical experts, it's people like Anthony Fauci and relevant public health bureaucracies. We can't have people playing politics with complex scientific matters. So who decides what your local school teaches your kids? Obviously, the experts, teachers, administrators, and education schools. We don't want parents demanding veto power over school syllabi. Who decides the future of the European Union? Right? The important stakeholders are in Brussels and Berlin, people who know what they're doing, not the short-sighted voters in France or Ireland or England. Who makes important U.S. foreign policy decisions? Right? You need the foreign policy establishment, the experts, not the mere whims of the elected president. So who decides whether an upstate New York school district gets to retain the Indian as its high school mascot? Well, obviously, the state's education commissioner, right? Not, not, uh, not school boards. All years at labor, and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I rejoice in Adventism's teaching of the fourth commandment. Also, I think Adventist teaching on the nature of death and the denial. So did anyone from the Seventh-day Adventist Church, when it expelled your father, leave together with him? Yeah, uh, tens of millions of dollars in donations and tens of thousands of people left the church with him. That's why you get books about the event called uh, The Shaking of Adventism and the like. Of eternal hellfire. I think that's very, very important. I know some wonderful Christians, reformed Christians. Okay, that'll do it for me. Take care. Bye-bye.